Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I am Star Spirit Seth. And I am Biometal Model Eric. Dude, I've got to say, between everything that's happened this week in the news and the release of the Aegis herself, Pyra and Mithra and Super Smash Brothers, it has been a full week of pure Nintendo wish fulfillment for me. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's because almost 25 years ago now, we collected the seven stars and restored Star Road in Super Mario RPG. And we'll be celebrating that game with a full all-in retrospective this week. I, I know this is one of your favorite games of all time, man. Try to try not to get too excited. It's so good. That game needs to come to the NSO Super <laughs> Nintendo app. But I, I can't wait for that. But with Retromania coming any day now at this point, a game that we've been waiting for for a long time, we're going to be celebrating by counting down our favorite Nintendo wrestlers of all time in this week's top five. I honestly don't know how much more awesome I can stand in this episode. Oh, this episode can get more awesome, my friend, because we're going to be joined by Bitfinity's Matthew Toronto to talk music, Nintendo, Brawl in the Family, his new Kickstarter campaign, and of course, Tadpole Treble Encore. <sighs> Wrestling, Mario RPG, Tadpoles. Dude, I feel like I might have hit the jackpot in Great Guys Casino. I can't take it anymore, man. We have got to start the show. It is time to go all in. Yes, folks, it is March. Finally, spring has sprung. There's finally green on our Animal Crossing islands again. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that, that was nice to see. But we want to welcome all of you new and returning listeners to All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show where each and every Saturday, no shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us today. We've got a great show lined up for you guys. But before we get into it, we do have something we need to stop and talk about. Um, you guys may remember back in January when we were talking about Gaming for Guru, the donation event being held in the Nintendo podcasting community that was benefiting Bobby Paul's, the Nintendo Guru, as he was hospitalized due to COVID-19 complications. Uh, sadly, after a long-fought battle, Bobby passed away last Friday. Uh, while we didn't know Bobby on a personal level, we were definitely fans of his content, and he was a big inspiration to the way we approach the way we create Nintendo content ourselves. It's so clear that he touched the lives of so, so many people, and for our part, we are proud to have been part of the army that supported him, raised over $20,000 for him, showing our love when he needed it the most, and we know that he felt that. So our, our hearts and condolences absolutely go out to his family and the people that loved him. You will find the donation link in the episode description to head over and support his family in any way that you can. But um, man, honestly, Bobby would probably want the show to go on and we're going to do that. But uh, but we definitely wanted to pay our respects first. So thanks, Bobby. Indeed. And if there is any way that you can support his family or the Nintendo community and this community that he loved to be a part of, then please do what you can. Absolutely. But he would, again, want the show to go on. So we are going to do exactly that. And we've got a great one lined up for you guys, sir. What's been going on this week? Oh, man. The series finale, that's the actual the name of the episode, 
uh, series finale of WandaVision dropped yesterday. And insanity doesn't feel like a strong enough word for it. <laughs> there were some folks who were like disappointed, but I honestly, I was so thrilled with the show. It, it honestly is one of my favorite seasons of television of all it, time. It's so good. And there's some very specific fan servicey stuff. Obviously, it's a Marvel product, but there are some very specific fan servicey things that happened that made me really, really happy. And uh, it's very, very much leading into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Obviously, it's been no secret right. that they have they've said that Wanda Maximoff, that the Scarlet Witch is going to be appearing in Doctor Strange 2. And they do kind of tease that at the end. Uh, no spoilers, but if you for some reason haven't seen it and you haven't heard, there are both mid-credits and post-credits scenes of the final episode yes. of WandaVision. So do stick around for for those. You gotta watch them both. I, I do really wish that Kat Denning had a bigger role in the final episode. Yeah. That's fair. I, I do really like her, but it, it is clear, again, no spoilers, but it is clear that um, this this kind of side of the MCU is, is going to continue. And I really love that this show set up a lot of really interesting things for the MCU. I frankly have not been this interested in where the MCU is going in a long time. And we certainly won't have to wait very long for the next MCU product. Falcon and the Winter Soldier starts, what, in like a week and a half? Starts on March 19th, yeah. so we're not going to have to wait very long. We're not going to have much downtime at all. If you haven't seen WandaVision, it's currently all episodes are on Disney Plus now, and Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to be starting up very soon. Uh, as a matter of fact, speaking of Disney Plus, that new Raya in the Last Dragon movie yeah. dropped yesterday, so I may wind up checking that out. They're charging $30 for premiere access to that. I, which I can't do it. I, I can't do it, man. I know. They... I understand why, because they're still trying to recoup like theater costs for stuff like that. I understand exactly why the price point is the way it is, because if you took if you and a significant other or whatever went to go see it at theaters, you probably wind up spending thirty dollars. But it's within a small screen setup when you're paying thirty dollars out of your own house and when your concessions are essentially home popped popcorn and you're watching on a screen quite literally one hundredth the size of a theater screen it is hard to drop that thirty dollars so i may just wait on that i do still really want to see it but we'll think about it here here's the thing for me it's not even the for me it's not even the value proposition right because i did when they did this for mulan mm -hmm. i did go ahead and do that it was in september I'll, i remember i did too yeah and i remember because it was on my birthday so it was early september and Here's what burned me about it, though, right? I had no problem doing that. My whole family and I watched it. It was definitely cheaper than going to the theater. What burned me on it was the fact that not even three months later, they made it free for everybody to watch on Disney+. Plus. So it's like, why wouldn't I just wait <laughs> to see if they're going to do the same thing with this? You know, so. I don't know, trying to tap into that FOMO, I guess. I guess. And especially with... Especially with spoiler culture the way it is now. I mean, going back to WandaVision, people were posting. I saw all over YouTube clips of the final episode of WandaVision. Yeah. Very, and the thumbnails were spoilery as all get out. So it's, it's I mean, granted, yes, Raya is not as heavily, you know, followed as right. the MCU at this point. But still, 
moving away from Marvel and Disney and stuff, I certainly had plenty of reasons to have my Nintendo Switch on over the past week, talking about wish fulfillment. We have been waiting so long on the implementation of Nintendo items in Animal Crossing New Horizons. And this past week, Seth, we finally got our first batch of Nintendo items in Animal Crossing New Horizons. And it's so glorious. I love it so much. If they do, man, I was just telling you this. If they do even half this much for Zelda's 35th, when that celebration finally does kick off in earnest, I, I... I will be so happy because their implementation in this is great. I love what they've done with these Mario items. They're so cool. You've got all the classic power-ups and you've got a bunch of different stage implementations like blocks and mushroom platforms and even thwomps, even goalposts. You've got the pipe that's been getting a lot of attention. The fact that you can actually warp with the pipe between, even from a, even from inside your house to a spot on the island. I even yep. saw... Somebody use it to get to the fourth level. There's a way if, you, yeah. if you're not familiar with uh, Animal Crossing, you can typically only build three levels up on your island, but players have been able to find a way to build a fourth and using the pipe, you can actually get up to that fourth level. So people are going to probably get a little insane with that. But all the different Mario items, just the furniture items are great, but we've also got Mario, Luigi, Wario, and Princess Peach costumes. Uh, and this was something I was telling you a few minutes before we started the episode, but man, seeing a Mario nose on an Animal Crossing avatar does look kind of <laughs> weird. Yeah, that's fair. I do like running around with my Luigi hat on, though, and uh, I've certainly got, you know, it's not the full Mushroom Kingdom up on my island, but I do have my pipes set up. I do have several Mario implements uh, on my island. So it's it's so cool to see. I can't wait for them to add even more Nintendo items because I think this is something that a lot of people were just kind of impatiently waiting on after uh, we're so used to seeing Nintendo items in Animal Crossing games at this point, even from the very first game. So it's so cool. Absolutely. And honestly, it's not just the Mario items. March has brought with it a couple interesting other addendums to Animal Crossing New Horizons. A couple creatures showing up uh ironically enough the tadpole makes its long awaited i guess return to animal crossing island so if you've never fished out a tadpole man it's so weird we're gonna be talking a lot about tadpole. yeah it kind of worked out that way didn't it? yeah it kind of (laughs) did that's weird but in addition to the tadpole coming there was a brand new sea creature making its debut this month the massive spider crab and this spider crab Ironically enough, this thing was kind of the tipping point for me. Obviously, with the Mario items coming really uh, hitting full force this month, I knew I was going to be spending more time in Animal Crossing. And I was never, you obviously have a fully decked out five-star island that's, you know, each individual square grid of your island is essentially meticulously planned out. I had, (laughs) I, despite having... 400 some odd hours into the game myself i still have a very naturalistic island for the most part i haven't gone too too far with the island customization but with the mario items i am going to start i'm probably going to create myself a little uh, short mario course using the different implementations and with this nice. with the spider crab specifically that kind of tipped the scale to me really wanting to make like a godzilla themed 
Monster Island. Because obviously you've got that Godzilla-esque statue that you can get in the game. You've got the giant robot you can get in the game. And there are a few other things you can get in the game that are very closely resembling uh, Toho monsters. You can get that huge Atlas moth figure that essentially is like a Mothra toy. And right. the, the reason the spider crab really brought this back up for me in my mind was there was the first Godzilla movie I ever saw was Godzilla versus the sea monster. And oh, okay. in that, that introduces a monster that's known as a which is essentially just a giant crab lobster thing. And they could have had a better representation of it, but still, I think the spider crab with it being as big as it is, I think it would be a halfway decent representation of Ibira if I were to do a monster Island. So I think yeah, I'm going to, yeah. yeah, I think I'm going to have, I really do think I'm going to have a, like just a little monster Island with the Godzilla thing and the giant robot and my Mothra figure and my Ibira spider crab hanging out, just have myself like a little Godzilla monster Island section of my animal crossing new horizons Island. I think that would be really cool and something that my visitors could check out. And, you know, with all these ideas flying through my head, I think I'm finally also going to create like my wrestling ring part to my Island. Nice. Cause I've got all the parts that I need for the wrestling ring. Uh, and obviously, I'm a huge fan of wrestling. We're certainly going to be talking a lot more about wrestling here in a little while. And that's another one of the reasons that it started to make me think of it. So for a while, I've had a very, very naturalistic Animal Crossing Island. But I think in the next month or so, I'm going to really start to get heavy into the customization options. But it turns out there's a lot of other games that are going to, that are going to require my attention. And even just this past week, man, uh, just waiting for Pyra and Mithra, just waiting mm. for Pyra and Mithra. You know this. I started replaying Xenoblade Chronicles 2 again. Yeah. Yeah, I've already spent about 20 hours just this past week again replaying Xenoblade Chronicles 2, despite the fact that it is a 120, 150 hour time commitment. It's just such a great game. And uh, ever since the announcement of the Aegis, Pyra and Mithra, that just really was the last straw in me decided to finally jump back in and revisit the the world of all rest and again despite the fact that it is a massive time commitment i have i have no regrets that is such an amazing game with a transcendent soundtrack a great battle system ad adorable incredible characters and if you've never played xenoblade chronicles 2 it's on the nintendo switch right now if you're wondering where in the world pirate mithra came from check it out i know physical copies are hard to come by but that is such a phenomenal game if you're even remotely a fan of jrpgs it is a must play however once pirate mithra did come out this thursday i spent a ton of time on smash brothers man Let's talk about Pyro and Mithra for a second, Seth. Yeah, they're great. I, I honestly was, you know, and I was looking forward to them, of course. I love, like you, I love Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 2. Great game. And was looking forward to that Mr. Sakurai Presents that did happen on Thursday. And when they basically shadow dropped later on that day, I could not download that update fast enough. They are so fun. I love the 
juxtaposition between Pyra, who's the slower, heavier hitting, you know, kind of KO character, to being able to instantly switch to Mithra, who is this kind of like quick, you know, dashing around with speedy attacks. Like, I, I just, I really love their implementation in this game. And the music. Yeah. Oh. We got 16 tracks from one of the best video game soundtracks of the past decade. Honestly, and this is something I told you, I've spent more time just listening to the music. I've honestly probably spent more time just listening to the music since Pyra and Mithra came out than I have actually playing with Pyra and Mithra. Yeah, me too. But I did play quite a bit with Pyra and Mithra, played quite a few matches. I went through their classic mode. I even did the multi-man smash with Pyra and Mithra. I uh, went through all of their spirit battles and speaking of the spirit battles one of the things that made me the happiest about all of this and of course we all know at this point that smash brothers is going to handle every character that it introduces with the utmost amount of reverence for the lore and for the fans and pyron mithra was absolutely no exception and there was one specific costume one specific color scheme that I was really, really hoping they would implement. And sure enough, not only did they implement it, but that's essentially the player two color. And that made me so happy. No spoilers, because the origin of the costume, the origin of the color scheme is a very big spoiler for the end of the game. But man, that's honestly probably the color scheme that I'm just always going to use. And... They also did the Pokemon gold and silver color scheme that a lot of people have pointed out, (laughs) which I thought was funny. But speaking of spoilers, it is kind of weird, though, because they didn't show off. There was a couple spirits in the Sakurai Presents they specifically obscured because of their relatively spoilery nature. But they're in the game. They dropped the update a few hours after Mr. Sakurai Presents. They're in the game. As a matter of fact, the one spirit that they obscured in the presentation is one of the main spirits on the splash page. When you go to the DLC spirits uh, menu. So it's like, Hey, don't look at this. This is spoilery, but they posted the image several places in the yeah. course of the game. Remain so pure for a couple of hours. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it seems a little redundant, but I, uh, man, I'm so happy. They did put that stuff in. Oh man. It makes me so happy. The, Final version, Rex's final form in the game. That made me so happy. Man, I, I'm just such a fanboy for Xenoblade Chronicles 2. And again, just like every character, they they handled it absolutely perfectly. They did 100% right by fans with the implementation of Pyra and Mithra in the game. All of her, all of Pyra's and all of Mithra's special moves are all directly taken from her specials in the game, which we knew were yes. going to be the case, but they still handled it perfectly. They still adapted it to Smash Brothers in the best possible way they could. And the final smashes were fantastic, like literally shot for shot what they look like in the actual game, which is just another layer of mm, chef's kiss beautiful. and. Uh, and right before I actually started playing with Pyro and Mithra, I watched Sky Bennett, who is the voice actress for the American voice yes. actress for Pyro and Mithra. I watched her reaction to the announcement of Pyro and Mithra. And uh, she was with somebody. She was watching the Nintendo Direct with somebody. But uh, when 
Pyra finally started showing up and they started showing all the the in-game battle footage, she just got this huge, huge glowing <laughs> smile on her face. She's like, I have been sitting on this for so long. I'm yes. so glad people get to see this now. And oh man, it's just all it just makes Eric happy. The Mario items makes Eric happy. Pyra and Mithra and Xenoblade Chronicles makes Eric happy. And just the thought that hopefully in the next few days we are finally going to get our hands on Retromania Wrestling, a game that I have been waiting months for. That makes Eric very, very happy. So again, big week of wish fulfillment for me, buddy. What about you? Yeah, so very similar. A couple of things that I did want to touch on, though. Um, So first of all, I am actually doing my first ever guest appearance on another podcast, the Nintendo Pals podcast, yes. we have had Andros from the Nintendo Pals on our show before, so definitely go back and check that out. But yeah, I will be popping up on their show this week. I believe the episode goes live Monday. We will definitely be posting about it when that episode goes live, so you can check that out. I'll be on video even for the first time, that that typical that YouTuber, Twitch streamer face reveal. Uh, so that'll be something I, I'm looking forward to, uh, to folks checking that out. And then also blue fire is a game that I have been playing kind of tertiarily this week. Um, as I've had time to play it, it's just really, really quickly wanted to shout it out because it is a phenomenal little indie game. We definitely have to cover it in a full indie showcase at some point in the near future, because, this game is basically if Wind Waker and Hollow Knight and like like if they just had this beautiful child that was like the had the tight precision controls of like a Super Meat Boy in a 3D collectathon platformer. You're going on record as saying Super Meat Boy levels of tight controls. It's very tight. I maybe not quite to that standard, but I would say it's like if Super Meat Boy is a 10 out of 10 in terms of tight controls, Blue Fire is like a 9. It's very, very tight. It is at least, I would say, if you if you think about something like A Hat in Time, right, which is a game mm-hmm. that we've covered before, um, and we both really enjoyed it, it's definitely like a step above that in terms of how tight the controls are. And A Hat in Time already controls pretty well, but Blue Fire just feels really good to play. Like the, and that's so important for a game like this. Pulls no punches. Uh, it's definitely got a nice level of difficulty to it. And runs well on Switch. Has a lot of interesting systems. There's a little bit of Dark Souls in there because everything's got a little bit of Dark Souls in there these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Definitely something that we need to spend some more time on. Um, in the in the very near future, because Blue Fire is a game that should not be missed on the uh, Switch eShop. Um, nice. Another thing, speaking of you know difficulty, uh, another game that I've been playing, and I know you've been playing as well, is Ghost and Goblins Resurrection. Ah, yes. I beat it uh, first try on Legendary. Of course, of course. So did I. I mean, yeah, no, you know, no, no big deal, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah. hasn't everybody? <laughs> yeah, everybody's done that. Easy game. Uh, but no, of course, that game extremely difficult. Uh, we are actually, I don't want to spend a too, you know, a, a ton of time talking about it because we are actually going to do a full ghosts and goblins review discussion next week on the show. So definitely come back and hang out with us for that. But top level thoughts is good game. I agree. It is good game. 
but yeah, that's that's pretty much what's been going on. Again, we'll we'll talk much more in depth next week about ghosts and goblins. But for now, what do you say we move into the news? There's so much. Again, this has been a massive, massive week. So let's go ahead and unpack this. Hey, listen. And to kick off the news, obviously, we've already started talking about it a little bit with Pyra and Mithra being released in Super Smash Brothers. That is one of the biggest news stories from the past week. Obviously, we had the Mr. Sakurai Presents presentation just a few hours before the shadow drop of the Aegis in the iconic Nintendo Brawler. And aside from Pyra and Mithra being shown off, there were a few pretty notable takeaways from Mr. Sakurai's presentation. One thing that a few people seem to have latched onto is the fact that Mr. Sakurai did mention that he has figures of the other unreleased Nintendo characters hiding <laughs> in his drawer somewhere, which yeah. a lot of people just thought was the greatest thing. But... Uh, we'll still have to wait on the announcement of those. I had a little bit of figure envy as a collector, for sure. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, I, of course, it makes perfect sense why he would have those figures. They need reference points for the artists exactly. and for the developers. That's one of the reasons they are so great about doing right by the fans and doing right by the lores because of their meticulous level of detail. So it makes perfect sense that they would have those figures. And speaking of figures man those two figures he had of pyra and mithra on his table were stunning wow they were so gorgeous cool. figures you were talking about figure envy that gave me figure envy no the exactly i was i was looking at those i was like where can i purchase those and how many hundreds of dollars must they cost <laughs> uh we did also confirm that pyra is mr sakurai's wife <laughs> yes that is now canon Yes, confirmed. Uh, I love how sly he was. You know, I was like, well, if I had to choose between Pyra and Mithra, specifically for their combat capabilities, that's all. I would probably choose Pyra. And we're like, yeah, we got you, Sakurai. Is waifu. Got it. <laughs> but in terms of notable, newsworthy takeaways from the Mr. Sakurai Presents, let's go ahead and pour one out for all the Monster Hunter fans out there. Yeah, I really thought you guys had a chance. I'm sorry. I did too. There's a lot that they could do with a Monster Hunter character. And maybe that might have possibly been part of the problem was, uh, where do you go with a Monster Hunter character? What weapon type do you use? Or do you, you know, there's so much when it comes to the weapon systems in Monster Hunter. Obviously, if you've even seen the demo for Monster Hunter Rise coming out in just a couple of weeks, there are what, 3,800 different weapon styles that you can play as? I mean, yeah, I, I understand. It, it would have been really difficult. I think they could have pulled it off. I think also, though, that they're they're really kind of... It's, it's an uphill battle, but, you know, in terms of Monster Hunter representation, it probably didn't need to be anything more than, than kind of what it is. Again, I feel bad for the fans, but they did have a Monster Hunter DLC character for... Uh, Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. Yeah. So it, it's the kind of thing that's totally possible, but making it work in a Smash Brothers context, it, you know, may, maybe this was the best we could have hoped for. I don't know, but we did have several Monster Hunter-themed Mii costumes hit the eShop with Pirate and Mithra's 11.0.0 yes. update. So if you are Monster Hunter fans, you do have a couple different Mii Fighter options. And admittedly, the Mii Sword Fighter does have a moveset that would probably be around about what you would get from a Monster Hunter character anyway. So Exactly. And it is a full 
Yeah, it's one of the big things with a lot of the me costumes is being able to see the me's awkward face. And especially when you have the Rothalos armor, the Rothalos armor does a very good job of obscuring the face. So if you really wanted a Monster Hunter character, that would probably be your best bet is to get the full Rothalos armor with the full face shielding helmet. It does look really good. Exactly. It does look really good. But unfortunately, it looks like that's as far as the Monster Hunter representation is going to go in, in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Unfortunately, we got Rothalos. We got a few spirits and we're getting a bunch of Mii Fighter costumes. But in addition to the Monster Hunter Mii Fighter costumes, that was not the only Capcom representation we got with the Mii's. We also got, uh, coinciding with Ghosts and Goblins, which we've already mentioned, there is a brand new Mii Fighter costume for Arthur. Yes, this made me happy. I Honestly, the only downside is I, I wish that there was some way to, to represent the, uh, the, the boxers. <laughs> oh, the boxers. Oh, man. But, uh, again, a bunch of new Mii Fighter costumes. There's about 50 uh, different Mii Fighter costumes available now in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. There's some really, really good ones. Obviously, Sans and Cuphead and Vault Boy immediately spring to mind. So, despite the fact that they can't have full character slots represented to all of these different, uh, all of these different franchises, I am glad that they are finding some type of way to to be playable to really find their own foothold in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yeah. Obviously, yes, it would have been better to have seen them as a full-fledged character, but let's be fair, with the amount of stuff that's already in Super Smash Brothers, there's already a hundred playable characters. There's already over a hundred stages. There's already over a thousand songs. This is already far and away the single most comprehensive piece of fan service ever created in the history of entertainment. So right. just, there's always going to be things that we wish could have happened, but I'm glad that we got this much at least. Speaking of spirits, they did also add a bunch of new spirits with Pyra and Mithra, a bunch of Xenoblade Chronicle 2 spirits that we've already touched on. But there were a couple spirits that were also added. Uh, again, they again talking about Arthur. They added a spirit for Arthur. And a matter of fact, they added a spirit for the brand new release, Persona 5 Strikers. The problem is... Yeah, the problem is, is that you have to actually own a full retail copy of either Ghosts and Goblins or Persona 5 Strikers and have that save data on your Switch to unlock them, which, ugh, man, it's like, you're doing it to me, aren't you? <laughs> you're really doing it to me. And now they did say that these are going to be released to everybody at a later date, and I'm sure they will. But it's going to be so annoying to see that oh, to see that missing space there on my spirit list. Until then, I'm like, oh man, I, I do want to play Persona Five Strikers, really, I do. But you guys are really going to force my hand here over the spirit, aren't you? <laughs> it gets to the point where there's almost 1,500 collectible spirits in the game, and you're just missing one, and it just is. Uh, yes. Oh come on! It's going to drive me crazy, dude. It's going to drive me crazy. But just like what they do with all of these special events when they introduce spirits and have introduced spirits over the past couple of years, they are going to eventually, like Seth said, release it to the public. But it is a little annoying that for the next few months, at least, we're just going to have to look at that empty slot on our spirit list. Now, Seth and I already have Ghosts and Goblins Resurrection. We've already played it. We've talked about it. So we both got the Arthur spirit, which is uh, the Arthur directly taken from 
Ghosts and Goblins Resurrection. Yes. It is directly taken from the new game, which has a stunning art style and it's a really good looking spirit. But you and I might have to to wait a little bit on the Persona Five Strikers one on Grumble, yeah. Grumble, 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 Grumble. Yeah. <laughs> old man yells at cloud. Yeah, old man yells at cloud. Doc JPEG. But uh, that's about it. Uh, we've talked a ton about Pyro and Mithra. We've talked a ton about all the other things from the Mister Sakurai presents. But there is so much more to get to from this past week. This wound up being a pretty jam packed week of news so let's get into the rest of it it really did and and real quick i did want to just kind of briefly mention because you know i I don't want to spend more time talking about the concert than the concert itself because uh you know that post malone concert did wind up happening for pokemon and it was only what 12 minutes long about yeah yeah so i mean it was it was something it was uh you know i it was pretty bizarre to see that art style but there was something kind of the spectacle of it was kind of interesting it was kind of just cool to see in a weird way. And I do kind of understand why he doesn't want to give, you know, an hour's worth of his music away for free on YouTube sure. where people can just continually rewatch it. I uh, I get that. I understand it. And it was really cool. Admittedly, seeing Post Malone in that weird, awkward 3D avatar state was a little off-putting for a few seconds, but you did wind up getting used to it. And all the computer effects they used to have him travel throughout the Pokemon world and having all the different Pokemon show up was really cool. And despite the fact it was just a 12-minute concert, there was something about the fact that it was 12 minutes that has made it really rewatchable in a weird way. And I've gone back and rewatched a few times fair. since then. So... We did hear a few Post Malone songs. Obviously, we hear that uh, awkwardly, interestingly good Hootie and the Blowfish cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, that was, it was cool. The, the one thing that did annoy me, and maybe this is one of those things, every now and then, being somebody who edits audio and is, is something of a novice audio engineer, I will notice weird audio things a lot of times when I'm watching movies or TV or whatever. And this one, it was so clear that, you know, the, the songs being played were just pre-recorded songs, but then they would just like mash in like audio clips of him acting like it was a live performance. Like it wouldn't surprise me if they just had him on a soundstage pretending like he was talking to a crowd and then just clipped that in. It was super weird. Like it was really jarring to hear that mixed with the actual, you know, songs. So that that took me out of it a little bit, but you know, like you said, it is rewatchable. I'll give it that. But it's certainly a thing that happened. And very shortly after the concert ended, they mentioned that you could find more info out at 25.pokemon.com. And it turns out that Pokemon, is not done with their 25th anniversary musical celebration just yet. It looks like the Post Malone concert isn't the end of it. We did hear previously that Katy Perry was going to factor into this in some way. And there are a few other artists that are also going to factor into it. And it turns out what essentially is going to happen is throughout the rest of the year, they are going to continue to sporadically release new content. They did mention that all the artists who are a part of this 25th anniversary musical Pokemon celebration are going to have their own music videos attached to this project. And they are going to release more merchandise. And after all is said and done, there is going to be a full 25th anniversary Pokemon album 
available for purchase. Yes. Apparently a 14 track album, which is going to have original music. It's going to of course have the post Malone stuff. It's going to have Katy Perry, Jay Balvin, whoever that is. I'm not familiar with him, but I'm, uh, I'm not either. I guess I'm not cool. Yeah, I'm not cool enough to be familiar with Jay Balvin, but them and more artists are uh, going to appear on this 14 track album. So so that is pretty cool. I had the original To Be A Master Pokemon album, yes. the soundtrack to the TV show. Yes. Anybody else out there have the To Be A Master album? Man, I, I played that thing on repeat back in the late 90s. Man, I love that thing. To Be A Master, Pokemon <laughs> Master. But man, I on the that way was... to Viridian City. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. But man, that was not at all the only thing that happened this week in terms of like events and stuff like that. Because we did have the New Game Plus Expo that happened yes. on Thursday, and I was shocked at how many Nintendo Switch announcements were loaded into this thing. There was so much for the Nintendo Switch. It honestly almost felt like a third party Nintendo Direct in it a really lot of ways did. because. Honestly, about 80-90% of the games uh, announced or shown off during this New Game Plus Expo on Thursday are coming to Nintendo's hybrid console, and there were some really interesting announcements during this New Game Plus Expo. A couple that we'll touch on. There were so many games announced, we can't go over all of them. Do check it out. If you haven't seen it, do check it out. There were a lot of Japan. It was mostly Japanese companies, games like right. Into Creates and Arc System Works and uh, Nipponichi. Uh, all, you know, talking about their own games, not a lot of Western developers, which is why I think in the West it didn't get as much coverage, but there were some really, really interesting games to come out of this presentation. Uh, for me, uh, probably the biggest one was the announcement from NT Creates of Blaster Master Zero Three. And if you've never played the Blaster Master Zero games from NT Creates, NT Creates, especially over the past 20 years, has really established themselves as the real, as the really big name in retro style action games. They are right. the ones that have done a lot of the handheld Mega Man games from like the Game Boy Advance and DS days. They are the ones behind the Bloodstained Curse of the Moon games. Uh, there's a ton of retro style action games that they are the helmers of. And these and this revitalized Blaster Master franchise is one of them. Blaster Master Zero came out, I think, five years ago now, and then they released Blaster Master Zero 2. As a matter of fact, I should be getting my Blaster Master Zero 1 and Zero 2 limited run collector's edition any day now as well. Nice. So very much looking forward to to that the first two games are really great hybrid platformer top-down dungeon crawler uh nes style experiences if you haven't checked them out do and we can look forward to blaster master zero three on the nintendo switch i believe july 29th is the release date for that it wasn't even just that though because i mean we've got gun vault 3 which they yep. did say is coming uh next year but azure striker gun vault 3 is coming they talked about Disgaea 6. The big standout announcement for me, though, above all else, <laughs> Pocky and Rocky Reshrined. Dude, a Dude. Pocky and Rocky re What is 2021? I, I I am authentically super excited for this. I am This too. was definitely the standout. If you've never heard of Pocky and Rocky, it's an insanely expensive Super Nintendo game. It is ridiculous. It's like three, four hundred dollars most of the time. It is a weird, interesting shmup. It's a top-down shoot 'em up game, 
where instead of playing as a futuristic spaceship, you play as these two chibi anime characters. And it's, right. it's great. If you've never seen Pocky and Rocky, look up some videos on YouTube. It's a really fun, really interesting little game. And it doesn't necessarily surprise me that they're remastering it or remaking it and bringing it back. But the fact that they even are just blew my mind. I was not expecting that whatsoever from New Game Plus Expo this week. Yeah, no, me either. It was a total pleasant surprise. They, they've been actually remaking a lot of these old Taito and Natsume games. They uh, Same folks that are doing this remaster also did the Wild Guns Reloaded and Ninja mm-hmm. Saviors Return of the Warriors projects, which were both really great. So I, I am confident that this is in good hands. And uh, again, especially for something like this, like you mentioned, the game, the original version being so expensive, it'll be really cool to see folks get a chance to play this on the Switch. And uh, yeah, this is a day one for me. I can't wait. Yeah, I also ha- I actually had that Wild Guns uh, re the reloaded. That's a really fun little arcade shooter. Yeah, and like, like yeah, Ninja Saviors is a great uh, 2D brawler. It's yeah, great games. And like we said, Disgaea Six that's coming out, I believe, in June. A bunch of other games were announced. A new game from Suda Fifty One, a new like noir mystery game coming from Suda Fifty One. He's certainly been a busy boy. Obviously, we've got No More Heroes Three looking forward to. And in No More Heroes news, really quickly, quick little PSA. Uh, in another one of their blockbuster deals, Limited Run Games is going to be releasing physical copies on the Nintendo Switch of No More Heroes and No More Heroes 2 Desperate Struggle. So those are going to become available for pre-order very shortly, I believe on the 12th, and just another huge contract for Limited Run Games. They are very quickly becoming not just the biggest independent game publisher, but one of the biggest publishers outright in video games. So we'll see uh, uh, the sky the limit at this point for LRG. More power to them. Very happy to see the good work that they continue to do. I need it. I know you do. I need it. (laughs) (laughs) I know you do. And once again, those collector's editions are gorgeous. Man, LRG keeps winning all of our money, don't they? Yeah, they they always do such great work. But speaking of something that will be taking all of our money when it does finally uh, open here in the States, they did announce that the opening of Universal Studio Orlando's Super Nintendo World, which was previously indefinitely suspended, has now a date, a target date of 2025, according to the mayor of Orange County, um, kind of as things are ramping back up to kind of getting back to full speed ahead on that project. Uh, of course, course covid knocked it down significantly but uh but cool that we finally have even though it's a far off date we do have a date to look forward to yes obviously the last news that we got on it was in the midst of the pandemic they had to essentially completely stop construction on super nintendo world down in orlando however even though it hasn't been again fully ramped up yet they are slowly starting to put the pieces back together slowly starting to get staff back on site to continue working on it and we have gone from indefinite to 2025 so that's still four years out but at least it's not we have no clue when it's going to open at least we have a now tentative date on it and we told you if any news came out we would let you guys know and we keeps our promises exactly so, I mean, this is something that we're both obviously super excited about, but we do have a little bit more time to wait. But I mean, honestly, you can go online and find videos of Super Nintendo World in Japan. And if that is any indication 
this will be a sight to behold when it finally yes. comes stateside. And look, I I am super excited to make that trip. That's that's going to be a pilgrimage. We should meet and walk there. <laughs> I mean, hey, I haven't been to Orlando in a long time, actually. We we went there for our... Uh, that, that's actually where I got engaged to my wife back in 2017. So I would be happy to uh, stop back in Orlando and go to Universal again. Nice. But another weird thing that, uh, that we have to stop and talk about, ever so briefly at least, is the Arby's and Shovel Knight collaboration? question mark (laughs) yeah and maybe the weirdest fast food cross promotion since sneak king on the xbox 360 (laughs) yeah who remembers sneak king out there that's a game that i'm very happy uh has not yet made its way to the nintendo switch but yeah just like seth said arby's and shovel knight yacht club games are doing a cross promotional event at participating in Arby's restaurants right now. And what's going on is they essentially have kids' meals toys, little disc shooters with Shovel Knight characters on them. Classic characters like Dr. Knight. Exactly. That's that's the interesting <laughs> thing is they have Shield Knight and Shovel Knight and a lot of the, the core characters from the game. But when it comes to Plague Knight, they're actually calling Plague Knight Dr. Knight in this promotion. And I spoke with you. I speculated on whether or not that was... Because they don't necessarily want to, in the middle of a pandemic, they don't it's want to. Yeah, they don't want to necessarily yeah. use the 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 name Plague Knight. But uh, for right now, as far as Arby's is concerned, Plague Knight is called Doctor Knight. But it, it goes just a, a little bit of a step further than that because it's not just these little Pog disc shooters that's part of the promotion. There's actual in-game DLC attached to this as well and we've seen some of yacht club games actually posted a video of some of this dlc in action and from what we've seen it turns some of the enemies specifically some of the enemies into arby's themed versions of themselves it's really weird to see some of the shovel knight enemies get turned into like beef and cheddars or large drinks or something like that. It's so funny. Yeah. One of them can give you like a little, uh, beef and cheddar sandwich fairy. Yeah. That floats along. I mean, it's, it's the most bizarre fast food, you know, collaboration I think I've ever seen. And I, just for that reason alone, I want to have them. Don't they have the amiibo functionality in Cyber Shadow where you can get, you can use the Shovel Knight amiibos to get little companions? Yes. That's yes. A, that's essentially the exact same functionality with this Arby's thing in Shovel Knight. When Seth is talking about that little beef and cheddar fairy, you actually have an Arby's sandwich flying around keeping you company in Shovel Knight. That's an actual sentence I've said in 2021. I mean, I got nothing. We we've certainly we've seen uh, recently Nintendo had the collaboration with Burger King and their kids meals toys. We of course had the blow up Pokemon 25th anniversary McDonald's trading card promotion. Of course, but for Arby's to collaborate with an indie game is super interesting. And this was something that you and I were talking a little bit about this. And my thoughts on it were obviously when it comes to these fast food restaurants and all the cross promotions and stuff they do with their kids menus, a lot of it comes from television shows and movies and kids media that's coming out at the time. And 
that's something we're actually not getting a lot of right now because of the pandemic, because so many productions were halted or delayed because of the pandemic. There's not nearly as much of it coming out right now. However, video games, we have still been getting video games. And not only have we still been getting video games, but because of the pandemic, video games have been doing big, big business. And in the year of the pandemic, a lot of fast food restaurants, it looks like they're saying, okay, this is the industry that's making the most money right now. This is the industry we need to be doing cross promotions with. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. I think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly why they, they've kind of, you know, hitched their horse to this wagon. It's, it makes perfect sense. I mean, and to, to be completely fair too, Arby's was a little ahead of the curb on this because I'm just super, super quick anecdote. We did end up going to Arby's. So, you know, the marketing worked on me <laughs> and asked for the shovel Knight toys. They first of all had no idea what I was talking about, but they, they said it. They, instead they said, are you talking about the just dance toys? Because I kid you not the previous kids meal promotion at Arby's is for just dance. So Arby's is apparently not new to the video game collaboration thing. How do you do a just dance kids meal toy line? It's like a it's like a little bobblehead kind of thing. <laughs> it's it's really weird. But <laughs> but they did it, man. And I mean, hey, I, I can't hate it. I respect it. I, I think Arby's is actually a super underrated fast food chain, but that's a tangent I won't go down. Um, but hey, again, this this was such an oddity. We just had to talk about it. And another oddity, there's not much to say here, but uh, we just, we have to shout out the fact that the Wii U, for the first time in three years, got a system update this past week for improvements to system stability and usability, version 5.5.3. The Wii U, folks. I would love to be a fly on the wall of the team at Nintendo that's still working on Wii U firmware. Honestly. I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like when that order came down, they must have been like, "We got to do what now?" That's got to be the division where developers and artists and employees get sent as punishment or something. Like, go to the Wii U team. <laughs> You're gonna be working on Wii U updates. We'll see you no! in three years. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. It was a very you know static kind of update, but again. When something this strange happens out of nowhere, it's not as if this is like indicative of a Wii U resurgence or something like this. But um, you know, you and I are are you know fans of the Wii U for for what it is, and we've done a in defense of segment uh, where we defended the Wii U in the past. So definitely go back and check that out for our full Wii U thoughts. But what a, what a weird thing to happen this week. I really didn't think that Nintendo ever wanted to forget the console and all the lessons they learned from it, but I certainly didn't think they were still actively working to improve the console in 2021. That's something that, I mean, between this and the Arby's Shovel Knight promotion, I legitimately can't think of what is more out there for me, what I'm more in disbelief over right now, because. If, right. if you had told me that the Wii U was going to get a firmware update in 2021, I, I would have laughed. It would have been a joke to me. Yeah. I mean, peace and love to the Wii U. But, but I mean, it, it is certainly really weird. Yeah, but for the three Wii U owners out there, you got improved stability on your console now. There you go. There you go. And that's all you can ask for, right? 
<laughs> but uh, another quick headline we wanted to touch on is that Fall Guys developer Mediatonic has now been acquired by Epic Games. And I mean, there, there's not a whole lot to say about that, but it was still a pretty massive deal. I mean, Fall Guys, a huge game coming to the Nintendo Switch this summer, which I'm so excited for. But yeah, to be acquired by, you know, the Fortnite guys, essentially, um, a, a, a big deal. I really thought that Devolver Digital had a better lock on Mediatonic. I thought that it was an official subsidiary of Devolver Digital because Devolver Digital has been right. really pushing Fall Guys since it released last summer. And Fall Guys was a massive hit upon release last summer. It seemed to be the game everybody was streaming there for a while. Obviously, with the release of other games, the popularity for Fall Guys has tapered off a little bit. It's not absolutely everywhere the way it was in the first month, month and a half of its release. But I don't know if it's under Epic's umbrella now. One of the ways that Fortnite has been able to maintain its relevancy for so long is the constant updates and the constant new things that Fortnite is doing, not just with skins and little mechanic tweaks, but with a lot of the promotions that they are doing. So if Epic is able to, you know, move a lot of that, if they're able to start doing a lot of the same things with Fall Guys, then I think this ultimately, a lot of people might bemoan Fall Guys falling under a more corporate umbrella now, but I think this might ultimately be a good thing for Fall Guys. I think it's going to help the long-term sustainability of the franchise. Yeah, here's what I think you're going to see as a result of this deal. I don't think the content of the game or like the quality of the game is somehow going to get worse or anything. If anything, they are now going to have more funding for things like more stable servers. They're going to have those epic games level connections because Fall Guys has had in-game skins to represent deals like Cuphead and Portal and stuff like this. You know, now... Epic Games has the level of connections to where you could see stuff like Marvel skins, potentially in Fall Guys, you know, stuff like that. And another thing, another big thing that I predict is going to happen with Fall Guys when it launches on Xbox and Switch this summer, I predict that as a result of this Epic Games deal, the game will be free to play. Um... Frankly, I'm shocked that the game is not free to play as it is, because when it launched, one of the big reasons the game was so huge when it originally launched on PS4 was that it was free for PlayStation Plus members at that launch period. So I would not be shocked at all if Epic Games rolls it back to the free to play structure, get more players in on these new platforms and just sell them cosmetics. I just hope it doesn't get super predatory with the microtransactions. We've seen it so, so often and there are good ways to do it. There are bad ways to do it. A lot of people bemoan microtransactions as a concept anyway, but if it's handled in a decent way, I won't mind. Again, I just hope it doesn't become super predatory. Specifically, I'm talking about loot boxes. Right. I really hope it doesn't become a, a big loot box, you know, money pit. So we'll see what happens. But uh, certainly a very interesting story. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I've traditionally really liked the way that Fall Guys has handled this, but it is a little bit weird to have that entry cost um, in the first place. So I, I honestly think that Epic's going to be like, look, we got the money. Let's just kill that and get more players in. I, I really I feel like that's probably the way they're going to go with it. But um, we'll see. Definitely something we will keep our eye on. We will certainly be playing that when it hits the Switch uh, this summer. But 
Speaking of collaborations and deals and stuff like this, we did learn this week that Polish Studio Forever Entertainment, these are the guys that did the Panzer Dragoon remaster, um, they announced that it has inked a new deal with Square Enix to remake, quote, several of their titles. They say that all the titles involved in this deal are tied to a single brand, but that brand will be revealed at a later date. So we don't know exactly what brand they're talking about. I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, it's going to be Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. I don't think it's going to be like that scale, but this is still going to be something worth keeping an eye on. Well, there's a few that we've already seen that we can rule out. Obviously, Final Fantasy VII Remake was handled amazingly well, but we've also seen other JRPGs get remade or re-released or at least announced. We've seen Saga Frontier that was recently announced at the Nintendo Direct that I'm super excited for. We've seen the admittedly not so great couple mana remakes, uh, depending on your opinion of the game. Some people liked uh, Trials of Mana, the Trials of Mana remake, but we've also seen some universally ho-hum remakes, specifically the Panzer Dragoon remake from last year didn't really set the world on fire. So if these games aren't from any of those, then at least that narrows it down a little bit. Yeah, I'd like to see them tackle some of the square properties that we haven't seen in a while. Not to make new games, but to, you know, to to remaster them the way they did with Panzer Dragoon. So specifically, I would really like to see them bring back Legacy of Kane. Oh. Um, and the Soul Reaver games. Oh, dude. That'd be really cool. And Square does own that property, so they could do it. I would love to see that on Switch. Oh, make that happen. Soul Reaver is one of my favorite original PlayStation games. It is such a fantastic gothic Zelda-style adventure. It's And Raziel's one of the coolest characters in video game history. Yeah. You know, bar none. He's so great. Definitely. So if that's on the cards, do that. Whatever else you were doing, if it's not that, do that. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like they're familiar with working with games of that era. Panzer Dragoon is very much a game of that era. So maybe that was kind of what made Square Enix's ears perk up a little bit. Maybe they're like, hey, you guys are familiar with working with this style of game. How about you come over and we'll ink this deal with you and we'll have you tackle the Legacy of Kain Soul Reaver series. We know there's a hungry audience for it. Apparently, I didn't play Astrobot's Playroom because I don't have a PS5 yet, but apparently they even reference... Soul Reaver and Raziel in that game. So there's a little bit of renewed interest perhaps in, in this series. And I would really like to see them tackle that. I would too. Oh, I need that now. I've had enough wish fulfillment this week, but I need it. I I need more. I need more. (laughs) Definitely. Well, we do have kind of a, another big thing here Uh, as we're closing out the news. We, we have got to talk about these hot and fresh out the kitchen switch pro rumors that uh, coming from Bloomberg, who is reporting that a new Nintendo Switch model is coming this year. Uh, they expect that they're going to have an announcement sometime in the summer for release this fall. Uh, they say that it will indeed output in 4K while docked and have a 7-inch Samsung OLED 720p display with plans to unveil later this year. Say that mass production is starting in June with an initial target of just under 1 million units produced per month. And this is corroborated by Bloomberg in their uh, Japanese connections. 
they have folks that are connected to these hardware production companies and Samsung and all the rest. So they, they have reason to believe that this thing is going to ramp up full production in just a few months. We talk about the Switch Pro a lot here on the show, but you know it's kind of cool to have some more potentially concrete details. Again, nothing's been officially announced. As a matter of fact, Nintendo even recently said that they don't have any plans to announce right. a new version of the Switch anytime soon. So what does soon mean? We don't know. But just more and more fuel gets just keeps getting thrown on that fire. Eventually, there's going to be enough smoke. Nintendo's going to have to finally say, okay, yes, here's what's really going on. Right. Again... All this looks good. The word corroborated has been used, but still without anything official, take it for what you will. But it is really nice to see that the things that are being talked about, the things that are being quote unquote corroborated are the 4K that we were talking about. That was one of the big things that we talked about the next version of the Switch had to do. As long as it does that and a few other things, we know eventually a new version of the Switch is going to come. We'll see what happens. I I, I hope it's pretty. I hope it I hope it solves all of our problems, uh, specifically with the Joy-Con drift. Yeah. But if it has 4K support and it has a few other bells and whistles, yes, please, I'll take one. I've seen a lot of folks online in the wake of this rumor that are disappointed in the news that this would be a 720 OLED screen versus a full 1080p screen. But what you've got to realize, folks, just I, I just want to address this head on to our listeners that when you're speaking about pixel density on a screen of that size, especially if we're talking about a seven inch screen, it's going to roughly be able to display the same level of clarity as like your iPhone, which is to say very, very clear. So, I, I mean, it's not like you're going to have suddenly a blurry image just because it's a 720p screen. And OLED technology, by the way, those screens are so bright and vibrant and beautiful. And I mean, this screen is going to be stunning. And and going with the 720p route is basically a trade-off of price versus power. Like, you, they're going to be able to charge less for this upgrade. It is going to drain less power on the Switch, you know, on the Switch's battery life. And uh, it's going to look just as good as it would if, if they were, you know, charging for a 1080p screen. So I, ju I just want to dispel those fears to folks uh, a little bit, because if you look at the actual stats and the way it breaks down, uh, you are not going to be missing your precious pixels on a 7-inch 720p screen in the Switch handheld. So just wanted to shout that out there if that does indeed end up being the case. So... And, and, you know, in any case, we're looking forward to it. When we do have official confirmation from Nintendo, we will certainly be, uh, you know, geeking out about it here on the show. But until then, these are just rumors. And just one last thing to talk about really quick in this jam-packed week of stuff is the fact that, again, we're in March. Which means that at the end of the month, Nintendo, as a matter of fact, reconfirmed recently that they are still going to be taking away all of the Mario 35th anniversary stuff. So at the end of the month, Super Mario 35, that Battle Royale game for Nintendo Switch Online owners, Mario 3D All-Stars, all of this stuff is going to be going away at the end of March. So if you have any remote interest in playing or owning any of this stuff, now is the time to finally pick it up. Yes, if you have not done that yet, please do before you get, you know, before you miss out. So, quick PSA there. 
But what did you guys think about this past week of Nintendo news? A lot to talk about. What are your opinions on all of it? Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And once again, thank you for hanging out with us each and every week here on All In, a Nintendo podcast. Thank you for listening on whatever service you're hanging out with us on. Do please like and subscribe to All In, a Nintendo podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you happen to be finding our Nintendo goodness each and every Saturday. So once again, thank you, thank you, thank you. We love each and every one of you guys. But there's been a lot going on this week, a lot to be excited about. Obviously, the imminent release of Pyra and Mithra in Super Smash Brothers. And speaking of imminent releases, there is a game that we, and specifically I, have been super excited about over the past few months waiting on its release, and that is Retro Mania, a game that we actually spoke with Mike Herman about, the developer from Retrosoft Studios, a few months ago. Do go back and check that interview out. But with the imminent release of Retromania coming to the Nintendo Switch, I got us thinking about some other famous Nintendo grapplers. So we decided we would count down a few of our favorites this week in our top five. Yes, so as it turns out, there are a ton of wrestlers represented in Nintendo games. And just as a quick caveat before we get into our respective lists... It is not necessarily, we're not talking about, we're talking about fictional wrestlers, professional wrestling themed. We're not talking about characters that have their roots in anime, manga, or anything like that. These are characters who appear in a wrestling context in Nintendo games. And starting off with my number five. So (laughs) this is a weird one. Okay. And this is why it's my number five. (laughs) I know that Tekken is traditionally associated with PlayStation. Okay. Yeah. But it is worth noting that Tekken Tag Tournament 2 did appear on the Wii U, and the iconic King of the Second was playable in that game. And that is my number five. King the Second from Tekken Tag Tournament 2 on Wii U. <laughs> I, I just had to do it. I had to have him on my list. I found a reason to have him on my list. He's like an iconic wrestling character to me, so I, f- I found a way to work him in there. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize this. Tekken has actually released three games on Nintendo consoles. Tekken Advance came out on the Game Boy Advance. You had Tekken 3D. I can't remember the exact name of it, but you had Tekken 3D on the 3DS. And then they somehow finally released a an actual console game on a Nintendo console on the widely bought Wii U. Everybody had it. <laughs> but yeah, But yeah, King has shown up three times on Nintendo consoles to... Uh, a lot of people's surprise. He counts. Yeah, absolutely. King, for a lot of people, I think, is is very much the, the poster child character for Tekken. Obviously, you've got a ton of really iconic characters from Tekken. You've got Martial Law, Paul Phoenix, Jin, Hihachi, Kazuya. Right. But for, for a lot of people, King and Armor King are the characters that they really think of first when they think of this fighting game franchise. Tekken... Right up there with Soul Calibur in terms of the greatest 3D fighting franchises of all time. And uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I just, I, I love King. I, I, he's got such an iconic design, like that cape, the the iconic Jaguar mask. He's also, what I found interesting, he's based on real wrestlers. Yep. He is based on two wrestlers, as a matter of fact, the tiger mask wearing Japanese wrestler Satoru Siyama. And the Mexican wrestler Frey Tormenta. 
who was the basis for King's background. So in Tekken lore, much like King the First, King the Second grew up as a street urchin and was raised actually by King the First in his orphanage. King the First ends up getting killed by Ogre, who is the literal god of fighting. So in the wake of this, basically King the Second, knowing that funding for the orphanage would kind of go away, and so with the legacy of King the First, he ends up donning the iconic mask, imitating his style, and and that's kind of where we pick up with that character. And uh, very much, you know, he's a really fun character to play too. He is definitely when I play Tekken, and I have a, a kind of up and down relationship with Tekken, but when I do play Tekken, that is the character I go for. Those kind of quick strikes. You know, the, the chain grabs, like he he's... Those chain grabs, man. My God. <laughs> yeah. He's he's a he's a very fun character to play. I, I like that kind of play style. He rewards patience, but um, again, just an iconic character for an iconic, iconic franchise. Well, there's a couple different character tropes, especially when it comes to fighting games. There's a couple different character tropes that are always very strongly tied to real world people. Obviously, a lot of fighting games have their Bruce Lee style character talking about martial law from Tekken, but there are a ton, there's a ton of fighting games that have wrestlers. I would say the vast majority of fighting games have some type of grappler character, even if they're not overtly based on professional wrestling. The vast majority of fighting games have some type of grappler, and most of those most of those have design ties, have at least tertiary references to real world grapplers. And of course, King being so inextricably tied to Tiger Mask and that entire style of fighting and wrestling. And uh, I mean, just like you said, King's Jaguar Mask. So yeah, good call. I, I, I respect that. King definitely should be on this list. I just, I, I couldn't not have him on the list. I was like, when we came up with the idea to do this list, he was like the first character that popped into my mind. And I was like, I got to find a way. I got to find a wormhole to work him in. So King is my number five. Nice. Well, talking about fighting game wrestlers with ties to real world wrestlers. My number five is Raiden slash Big Bear from the Fatal Fury slash Capcom versus SNK franchise. I know how much you love this franchise too. I do. I do. Capcom vs. SNK 2 is my favorite fighting game of all time, which, if you know me, is saying something. But there's a couple specific reasons why I put this character on my list. Because, uh, A, it's just a really cool wrestling character with a fire breath attack. But uh, the, the really interesting thing about Raiden slash Big Bear is the fact that it's Raiden slash... Big Bear. And what I mean by that is the character has appeared over the course of the Fatal Fury franchise as both. Now, anybody who's familiar with professional wrestling, you'll hear the word babyface and you'll hear the word heel be thrown around a lot. And those are essentially the good guy, bad guy personas these wrestlers have. Raiden and Big Bear are the same character, but Raiden is the heel persona. Big Bear is the face, the babyface persona of this same character. And Raiden has appeared in the series as both a heel and a face. Playable Mm. as both Big Bear and as Raiden. And I thought that's just really, really cool. That's awesome. In addition to that, Big Bear, I'm just going to refer to him as Big Bear from now on. 
Uh, just like we talked about how King from Tekken has really strong ties to Tiger Mask and that entire style and that entire persona and gimmick, Big Bear is directly based off of the legendary Big Van Vader from the 80s and 90s in Japan and WCW, even had a brief run with the WWE. If you look at the character model for Big Bear, then, I mean, it's very, very obvious. Vader has an incredibly unique hairstyle. Uh, you know, there's always a lot of big, thick, chonky, bald guys in wrestling, <laughs> but there's not too many of them that have Big Van Vader's hairstyle. But it's just, it's so cool. It's so cool. A lot of the Fatal Fury games are on the arcade archives on the Nintendo Switch. Capcom vs. SNK2 EO came out on the Nintendo GameCube. Uh, I really recommend checking out all of those. SNK has been at the helm of some of the best fighting games ever made. And if you ever have a chance to check it out, if you're a fighting game fan at all, I do recommend going back and searching those out. That's awesome. Great pick. I, I You know, for my number four... I'm going for a slightly, you know, it, it was, it may have been kind of a, a, I had to work King in. I did not have to work this character in. This character is in a game that is not only not a fighting game, but is very squarely a Nintendo game because this character appears in a Zelda game. <laughs> this character is Gore Koron from The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Now, Gore Koron is a, a, an ex sumo wrestling champion uh, who is now in his old age, one of the elders of the Goron tribe in death mountain. He is this kind of smaller in stature than all the other Gorons. He's old, he's wrinkly. However, that does not mean that you will step in his house. And that does not mean he will not absolutely fling you out of the ring. Like you're a ball of crumpled paper. Um, and a lot of people who have played Twilight Princess, you will remember encountering this character because he will frequently test Link's strength in straight up sumo wrestling matches where you have to, you know, dodge and grapple and, you know, and push and, you know, eventually try to work each other out of the sumo wrestling ring. And the only way that Link can even stand a chance is by weighing himself down with the iron boots. So... I, I just, I love that. I love that you have to contend with somebody who is just, you know, bigger than you in every sense of the word, but somebody who has all this history with sumo wrestling challenges you, makes you prove yourself to him and no spoilers, but once you have proven yourself to him, he actually even plays a, a major role in the little subplot of restoring Ilya's memory. And I won't spoil anything because I'm, I'm really kind of hoping that twilight princess winds up coming to the switch this year, but um, yeah, he, he's not a unimportant character. And, and again, definitely a memorable one in twilight princess. Nice. Well, when we're talking about my number four, uh, we're talking about fictional wrestlers. We're talking about characters that have appeared in Nintendo games. We're not talking about IRL professional wrestlers. We're not counting down our top five favorite professional wrestlers of all time. There's no Stone Cold Steve Austin, no Hulk Hogan, no Rock, none of this. Yeah, John Cena was on my list, but you can't see him anyway. Good night, folks. Oh, I'm going to catch you guys. Good night. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. Good night. But no, like I said, we're not talking about Stone Cold Steve Austin. We're not talking about Hulk Hogan and Sting and Ric Flair. We're not talking about those people. However, my number four pick does appear in games with them. 
My number four is Aki Man from WCW NWO Revenge and WWF No Mercy. Aki Man. I don't know that I'm even familiar with this character. Now, anybody who is familiar with wrestling video games from the 90s and early 2000s should be a little familiar with Aki Corporation because they have had a hand in most of the really notable ones around that time, including WCW NWO Revenge and WWF No Mercy, a game that many still consider, even though it came out on the Nintendo 64, a game many still consider to be the best wrestling game ever made. Aki Corporation within the professional wrestling fandom is kind of a legendary name, and they decided to kind of represent themselves in their own game. So they created this almost Pepsi Man looking luchador <laughs> within WCW NWO Revenge that you can unlock that has almost maxed out stats called Aki Man. I, I mean, that's that's the best way to describe him. I'm looking at him right now. That's definitely the best way to describe him. Yeah. Uh, but one of the really, really interesting things about Aki Man was, like I've mentioned, he shows up in WCW NWO Revenge, but also in WWF No Mercy. Now, younger professional wrestling or younger video game fans may not think too much into that. However, back in the late 90s and around 2000, WCW and WWF, the precursor to WWE, were essentially at war. They were right in the middle of what was called the Monday Night Wars. They were hated right. rivals. However, Aki Corporation was such a legendary name within wrestling video game development that both WCW and WWF got them to make their games. And Aki Man appears in games for both companies. That's honestly like if Kratos showed up in Halo. I mean, this was not a peaceful rivalry at all. So the thought that you had a single wrestler, a single character who was jumping, who was playable for both companies' games is was kind of unthinkable back in the day. It's kind of amazing right. that happened. Obviously, WWE would wind up purchasing WCW and folding all of that product into the WWE umbrella. But back when this came out, that was pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. And again, Aki Man just had a really interesting moveset. By itself, he was just a really entertaining character to play as. Obviously, it was a character based off their own company's namesake. So they wanted to kind of make it the one of the best characters in the game. And they certainly succeeded in that. But in addition to just being a really fun, unique, bizarre character to play as in both of these games, it also serves as just a really, really interesting original creation and a snapshot in time for the actual IRL professional wrestling landscape. That's awesome. I respect that. That's that's a cool little, like you said, snapshot in time. I definitely respect that. Well, for my number three, this was another character that I was like, well, I, I have to have this character on my list because... Street Fighter is such an iconic series. And, and like you have already mentioned, so many of these fighting games have got some sort of wrestler representation in them. And when it comes to Street Fighter, I think that Zangief is the ultimate wrestling representation. The Red Cyclone himself. The Red Cyclone! Uh, <laughs> he's just this massive 
400 pound dude with this big beard and mohawk with this like booming like hairy lumberjack chest covered in scars that he got from wrestling Siberian bears <laughs> he's got this like I, I just love his design he's always been one of my favorite characters to play in Street Fighter and actually this is yet another example of his appearance and physique actually being based on a Soviet heavyweight wrestler named Saman Hashimikov. I, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, and, and this is another example where if you look this guy up, um, it's very clear just in the, the body type and stuff. I mean, he looks like, with the exception of his like hairstyle, obviously, because Street Fighter's got kind of that exaggerated, cartoony kind of vibe to it. He's not rocking a mohawk, but otherwise, I mean, the dude looks like Zangief. And um, he's his name comes from yet another Soviet pro wrestler, Viktor Zangiev. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting real world connection there. Um, another thing I love about him is that he's extremely patriotic. He's an actual yeah. national hero that literally fights for the glory of Mother Russia, and he just he he does so with his famous lariats and pile drivers, and he's just he's so fun to play. I. I've always loved playing as him in, in every Street Fighter game. He is one of the first characters. I mean, I, I'm always going to be a, a loyal Guile player, but um, I, I would say Zangief for me, top three in terms of the my favorite Street Fighter characters. Well, Zangief, legendary character. Obviously, Street Fighter 2 changed the gaming landscape when it came out back in the early 90s, and Zangief was one of the eight playable characters that was a part of that Revolution. Zangief has been around so long that he was originally from the USSR. Kids, yes. ask your parents what that is. <laughs> yeah, great but, point. But for 30 years now, practically, uh, Zangief has been crushing men's head like spedo egg between thighs. I'm so glad he mentioned that. I he, he is one of the best parts of Wreck-It Ralph, man. I love that scene so much. <laughs> yeah, Zangief is so iconic. He actually got a full spoken cameo in the beginning of the original Wreck-It Ralph. If you've never played the game and you were wondering who in the world that character was, that is actually Zangief with all of that weird shin hair coming out of his boots with that <laughs> weird arrow-shaped chest hair. He's just such a great character. Uh, and when it comes to video game, when it comes to fictional video game wrestlers, he might just be the most iconic of all time. By the way, fun fact about that little Wreck-It Ralph cameo, he's the, the, providing the voice was the director of the movie. I thought that was kind of cool. Nice. I actually didn't know that either. It sounded it sounded like Zangief. Yeah, it was a great impression. <laughs> and again, just such a, I love that moment so much. They, they really got a nice humor out of him. And I, I really think, especially with games like Street Fighter 4, we got to see a lot more of his personality. Um, that game obviously was a lot more animated and fully voiced yeah. and stuff like this. So, but anyway, yeah, great character. Zangief had to be my number three. Well, for my number three, I am paying tribute to a very unique, but much beloved wrestling game a game that inexplicably we have not seen a true follow-up to in about 20 years it is a legendary title and the character that i'm picking from it is crow played by snoop dog i'm talking def jam <laughs> fight for new york i love def jam man oh i'd love to see jeff uh, def jam come back yeah for those who unfortunately may not have ever played Def Jam Vendetta or Def Jam Fight for New York. 
It is a short-lived wrestling video game series featuring all of the most popular hip-hop artists from the late 90s and early 2000s. People like DMX and Exhibit and Snoop Dogg and Dre and Eminem and Sean Ludacris Paul. and yeah. Sean Paul and <laughs> Sticky Fingers and Ghostface Killer and all of these famous Def Jam hip-hop artists, rappers from right around the turn of the century. They put all of these personalities into an amazing short-lived wrestling game series. Def Jam Vendetta was great, but Def Jam Fight for New York was darn near wrestling bliss back in the early 2000s. It released on the Nintendo GameCube, and Snoop Dogg plays a fictionalized version of himself in the game called Crow, who serves as the primary antagonist of the story mode. And a lot of people still put, to this day, they still put Crow as a basically S-tier in the game. There's a lot of, uh, I know there's a lot of Def Jam tournaments that don't even allow Crow, that you can't even play as Snoop Dogg in. Wow. But, but yeah, it's, it's just such a fantastic game. Obviously, when people think about wrestling games, they think of a ring and they think of brightly colored underwear and they think of these bombastic superhero-esque personalities and lucha masks. Def Jam Fight for New York is a very different type of wrestling game, but make no mistake, it is definitely a pro wrestling style game. And if you have not ever played it, you really owe it to yourself. If you're even remotely interested in playing pro wrestling games, you definitely need to find a way to check out Def Jam Fight for New York. Yeah, because it wound up having this kind of like underground hip hop, like street kind of vibe. And it kind of had this... Um grunginess to it that I that I really liked and I don't know there it had a really unique kind of flavor to it that that I I miss like it would be cool to see it'd be cool to see those kind of games come back there's another I don't want to get on a huge tangent about it but there's another game I was thinking about when you're talking about that Mark Echo's getting up oh that was such a good game really good game and it was that same kind of vibe you know I I miss that yeah the problem is you really couldn't make a Def Jam game today because all the hip-hop artists all the rappers back in the late 90s early 2000s they were believable as fighters I could picture Exhibit being in a fight I could picture Dre and Snoop Dogg right at least at least circa 1990 Snoop Dogg. I'm not talking about like Ocean Spray, Vivint Security System salesman Snoop Dogg. Hey, Snoop Lion now. Snoop Lion. <laughs> but there's like none of the hip hop artists that are out now. Like Lil Wayne, he's not a believable fighter. Oh no, dude. Drake's no, 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 Drake's no. not a believable fighter. So maybe that's why we haven't seen a Def Jam game in, in forever because they just don't make them like they used to, man. And I'm talking about both the games and the artists. That's fair. That's absolutely fair. I mean, yeah, they they couldn't really pull that off today. But in any case, I'm pretty much going for my number two as far in the opposite direction as possible to a tropical island in the in the Alola region in Pokemon Sun and Moon. I was wondering. I was wondering. (laughs) Yeah. Because my number two is Incineroar. This was another one where it just I, I had to do it. I love Incineroar so much. Um, yes, from Pokemon Sun and Moon Generation 7, the fire dark type wrestler cat, uh, who is, of course, the final evolution of Litten, who is one of the game's starting Pokemon. Um, of course, we're coming fresh off of Pokemon week, so I, I maybe have some, you know, some Pokeball-shaped glasses on right now. But I, I just, I love Incineroar so much. He's just this, again, big, 
muscular f- flame cat with like this flaming championship belt around his waist and this kind of like snarky show offy attitude. Um, of course, uh, was a companion to Ash in the Sun and Moon anime. And of course, as we all know, a playable character in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Um, I, he's awesome. He, he's awesome in every context. Um, sports some iconic moves like the malicious moonsault and the uh, darkest lariat. He's uh, he's great, man. I love Incineroar. Yeah, when they put Incineroar into Super Smash Brothers, they really uh, they really doubled down on that entire pro wrestling uh, motif that Incineroar was really trying to emote. Obviously, there's been fighting type Pokemon throughout the entire history of the franchise, and we even had Halucha a couple generations before that, the flying fighting type. But even Halucha, the masked luchador-style bird-type Pokemon, really didn't lean as much into the professional wrestling motif as Incineroar does. Just to really drive home what type of fighter he was, when Incineroar, when they were showing off Incineroar originally for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, uh, Sakurai, I think, even straight up name dropped Red Cyclone, talking about uh, Incineroar's darkest lariat in the game. So, That's yeah, we awesome. know, we definitely know who Incineroar is. Incineroar's throws are even powered up in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, he, he's awesome, and I love his kind of like in Smash. Like again, I, they just drive home that personality, that kind of show offy, taunting kind of thing, you know. He's, uh, he's great. And yeah, they incorporate that into his moveset in Smash like so well. Yeah, his final Smash is so powerful it actually even manifests a wrestling ring for him to slam his opponents into. Right. <laughs> right. But coming into the top two, I have my Capcom representative. Now, I know we've already talked about Zangief from Street Fighter. However, before Street Fighter, there was another character who was very famous for... Uh, his wrestling prowess in Capcom's game, Pantheon. My number two has to be Mayor Mike Hagar. Of course. From Saturday Night Slam Masters, from Final Fight, from Marvel vs. Capcom 3, the multiverse traversing, frankly, apparently, (laughs) Mayor of Metro City. Uh, I mean, really, what is there to say about Mike Hagar that hasn't already been said in a thousand different ways by a thousand different people. He really just kind of has been there and done that and almost kind of a, a, an inside joke talking about professional wrestling politicians like Jesse Ventura from the eighties. Mike Hagar did leave his job at Saturday night slam masters as a professional wrestler to become the mayor of Metro city. And when things <laughs> when things got dicey in Metro City, he just ripped his own shirt off, got with his friends Guy and Cody, and decided to fix everything himself. So, <laughs> go on a fact-finding mission. <laughs> but a lot of people, even a lot of people, don't even remember Saturday Night Slam Masters. Saturday Night Slam Masters was a fantastic little game from Capcom. Is very much you can see a lot of the Final Fight DNA within Saturday Night Slam Masters more so than a lot of beat 'em ups. Saturday Night Slam Masters was very much set up like a fighting game. Most wrestling games are thrust into the same fighting game genre, but they still feel very, very different. Saturday Night Slam Masters did feel quite a bit more like a traditional fighting game, but it was also still very entrenched in the wrestling genre. 
but Mike Hagar, again, just iconic. That jumping pile driver of his, he also has a lariat. He, you know, swinging pipes and everything around. So he's very clearly very comfortable in hardcore matches. But I just had to basically choose him for the stash. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. Iconic. And even though it never showed up on a Nintendo console, there is, if you're able to get a if you're able to get your hands on it, there is a final fight 3D fighting game out there it's very obscure it's very hard to get your hands on but if you're able to definitely check that out and of course mac uh, of course mike hagar is also playable in that but a lot of newer gamers like i mentioned previously probably know mayor hagar from his appearance in the marvel versus capcom series and coming into marvel versus capcom 3 zangief had been playable in the first marvel versus capcom games uh marvel versus capcom 1 and 2 but for marvel versus capcom 3 they realized that Zangief and Mike Hagar could not occupy the same space in the same time that one of them had to go. And it looks like Mike Hagar was able to beat out the Red Cyclone for a roster slot in MBC3. And frankly, I'm happy that he did because he's super interesting and super fun to play in that game. And just for the sheer number of franchises that this one iconic mustachioed wrestler has appeared in, I definitely had to throw him in my top two. That's awesome. Well, before we get into our respective number one picks, uh, I, I feel like we need to shout out a couple honorable mentions. I have some myself that almost made the list, didn't quite. Um, the first one I want to shout out is Rock Hawk from <laughs> Paper Mario The Paper Thousand Mario. Year Door. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. The champion of the Glitz Pit. And uh, I mean, everything from from just his his design and and that whole moment in that game is just is just classic. What a great game. Funny thing about Rockhawk, as a matter of fact, he is uh, his design is based off of Hulk Hogan. His name in the European version of the game is actually a direct reference to that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. If you, I mean, you take one look at him, you could totally see that for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, Definitely. And another one I wanted to shout out was from the Saints Row series, Killbane. Um, <laughs> because Saints Row the third and fourth uh, are both available on the Nintendo Switch now. Uh, leader of the Luchadors crime syndicate. Uh, he's a great character. He's this kind of just stoic, again, wearing the Luchador mask, leader of a gang. He is probably, in terms of all the rival gang leaders, he's probably the most traditionally respectful Super intimidating, super violent. That is not a game for kids. <laughs> no. But uh, but if you are a, a, an adult, the Saints Row series is a lot of over-the-top fun, and Killbane's a standout character. Yeah, that also goes for Def Jam Fight for New York. That's also not a kid's game, but... Right. I did also have a couple honorable mentions. I'll get through them real quick. I did, for a second, consider putting a Pokemon on my list as well, and if I were going to, it would have been Pikachu Libre. Oh, yes. The masked Pikachu Luchador from Pokémon Tournament that was so popular, they included Pikachu Libre as a playable costume in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Yeah, I mean, how adorable is that, man? Pikachu Libre. That just makes too much sense. It's amazing it took us this long to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Pikachu's had a lot of costumes over the years, but Pikachu Libre might be my favorite version of legitimately i think it's my favorite version of pikachu ever i also wanted to shout out 
We've already talked about Mike Hagar from a beat-em-up franchise. I wanted to shout out another beat-em-up franchise, specifically Streets of Rage and Max Thunder. Of course. From Streets of Rage. Yep. Playable in Streets of Rage 2 and returns in Streets of Rage 4 as a possessed boss encounter. But uh, Streets of Rage 4 is a phenomenal game, by the way. If you haven't played it, do play it. Uh, in researching this list, I also I actually went back and replayed through the game and uh, replayed through the game. I unlocked the Streets of Rage 2 version of Max Thunder on my subsequent nice. playthrough. So I got to, to play as that. That made me very happy. Played as Max Thunder against the the possessed Streets of Rage 4 version of Max Thunder. I would really like to see that version of Max become playable, but definitely had to shout out Max real quick. And the last one I'm going to shout out, I talked about a wrestler, a fictional wrestler that showed up in a game with IRL wrestlers. And I wanted to shout out one last wrestler real quick. Suicide from TNA Impact. Now, a lot of younger fans may be wondering, like, well, I've, I've seen suicide i i've seen pictures and i've seen actual suicide i've seen the actual suicide wrestler having matches he is an irl wrestler what are you talking about suicide is an irl wrestler now but that's suicide's origin suicide was created specifically for the nintendo wii tna impact video game and tna wound up just running with it and turned suicide into an actual character on impact wrestling So that's where Suicide, the wrestler, actually comes from. And Suicide has been portrayed by several different wrestlers over the years. I've actually had the occasion to meet a couple of them and hang out with a couple of them on a few occasions. Really cool guys. But uh, I definitely wanted to shout out a fictional wrestler that became an IRL wrestler. And fun fact for completionists out there. there are a couple very indie promotions where a version of Aki Man has also appeared. So I, I don't know how official that version is, but I do know that Aki Man, my number four entry, has also appeared in a couple very indie independent promotions uh, here and there. So if you're interested in that weirdness, check that out as well. That's fantastic. I, I love little facts like that. That's That's so interesting, but... Let's get into it, man. Let's get into our number one picks. Our number one pick for our top five favorite wrestling characters in Nintendo games. For my number one, it's interesting. Because the thing about my number one is he technically is not a professional wrestler. And in fact, kind of grew up dreaming to become one. And ended up getting his wish in Guacamelee. (laughs) My number one is Juan. From Guacamelee. He starts off the first game as just this kind of lowly agave farmer in the small hamlet of Pueblucho. And basically, his childhood friend and love interest, who is never named, by the way, just El Presidente's daughter, uh, is kidnapped by the evil Carlos Calac. It's very Saturday morning cartoon. And um, that's when we see Juan's heroic spirit shine through really for the first time. And this is what I love about Juan. He is just a normal dude and he has got the spirit though of the heroic luchador wrestler he always wanted to be. And it's not long. This is not a spoiler. This happens literally within the first 10 minutes of the game. He is promptly killed by Kalaka. He ends up waking up in the world of the dead 
and is chosen by a mythical luchador mask, which then binds itself to Juan and grants him amazing strength and powers and abilities. And, you know, the game Guacamelee is a, a fantastic, fantastic Metroidvania series by Drinkbox. And throughout the course of the game, much like Metroid, basically an explicit reference to Metroid. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you play the game. It is Guacamelee is extraordinarily referential. Um, Juan's entire move set winds up expanding and becomes rounded out with several wrestling moves like a, the, the frog slam, the rooster uppercut. And uh, he's just a super endearing character. He literally embodies the luchador spirit and was chosen by that mask. And I, I just, even though he never technically wrestles on like a professional scale, he still uses wrestling to ultimately save the world and the girl of his dreams. I just find that so endearing. And of course he's gone on to appear in several indie game crossovers and has become a super just iconic design and, you know, has been the star of two fantastic games. And I just, number one, Juan, I I just love him. He's a great character. Most importantly, he was also a playable character in Runbow, our indie showcase from a couple weeks back. Yeah, so is Tostada from Guacamelee, actually, the guardian mm-hmm. of the mask. So, mm-hmm. yeah, great games, man. Great co-op games, too. Tostada's the player two character, and uh, Tostada's great, too. But she's not as well fleshed out, obviously, as Juan. But, man, um, again, I, I just love that he embodies that kind of heroism. Yeah, luchadors, in the lucha libre tradition, luchadors are considered very larger-than-life superhero-esque characters in a lot of Mexican and again, Lucha Libre folklore going back to the legendary El Santo. Uh, El Santo, for those who aren't aware, a lot of people are very familiar with luchadors today, specifically people like Rey Mysterio. But if you've never heard of El Santo, El Santo is this mythical figure. He was a real IRL wrestler in Mexico, but his mystique had grown to literally like Superman levels in Mexico. That's not hyperbole. He was in dozens of movies, comic books, all kinds of stuff. He was a larger than life, like actual superhero-esque character. And that's where a lot of the mystique of the luchadors comes from, was the fact that El Santo was able to build up the idea of luchador into this, uh, again, this mythical proportion. So it's really, really great to see. There's a ton of amazing uh, luchadors and masked wrestlers all over the world. It's an incredible tradition. Of course, me being a huge wrestling fan, there's a lot of them that that I really, really appreciate and really love. But yeah, if if, if I could have ever had the chance to meet El Santo, that man, as as a professional wrestling mark, as they're called, that would have been the ultimate for me. But for my number one, if you're if you're remotely familiar with professional wrestling video game history, you've probably been wondering when one character or one game specifically was going to appear. Well, of course, we had to put it at our top spot. My number one is, of course, Wrestler Kirby from Kirby Fighters 2. Of course. It's of the course. obvious choice. Clear <laughs> obvious choice. No, it's Starman from the professional wrestling game on the NES, Pro Wrestling. Pro Wrestling came out back in 1986, actually celebrating its 35th anniversary this year as well, in addition to The Legend of Zelda and Metroid. But 
Ironically enough, uh, I played, uh, I had so much fun researching this list. I wound up going back because pro wrestling is available on the NSO Nintendo app. And I went back and played pro wrestling a little bit on the NSO app. And for it being like the first real console professional wrestling game, it holds up a lot better than you think it would. It really does. That's awesome. There's a lot of things in the original pro wrestling Nintendo game that I'm honestly surprised made it into that original console pro wrestling game. Uh, The number of moves for a two button layout was fairly impressive. The fact that you could actually suplex your opponent out of the ring. The fact there was an actual damage meter, there were moves that you couldn't perform that wouldn't, that your opponent would automatically counter until they had been damaged enough. There was stuff you could do off the top rope. There was a pretty impressive amount of things that you could do in the original pro wrestling game. Now, obviously, when it comes to uh, modern pro wrestling games and arcade pro wrestling games, yes, there's a ton more that you can do. And there's a ton more characters you can play as now. But as somebody who grew up on NES titles, I was really surprised how much fun I was having going back to the original console pro wrestling game. And even though there's only six playable characters in the game, there are two that absolutely stand out head and shoulders above the rest. One of which is, for all intents and purposes, the creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, yeah, basically. A character called Amazon. And another one of the cool things they were able to incorporate, although we take it for granted now, obviously, but each of the characters in pro wrestling did have a couple of their own signature moves as well. And Amazon did this like piranha bite on your head and also did this multiple head punching headlock attack. But for anybody who's ever played the game, for anybody who's ever heard about the game, there is one character who really serves as the poster child for the entire game. And that is, of course, the pink and blue Mexico, question mark, luchador <laughs> Starman. Now, the reason I say Mexico, question mark, is in the bio, in the character's bio, uh, each of the characters in the game has a bio the game will go through, and it says their country of origin. But for Starman, it actually says Mexico, question mark. Date of birth, question mark. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for Amazon, country of origin is parts unknown, which is a wonderful little professional wrestling reference to old WWF because there were, you know, some characters, some of the more, let's just say out there characters, they would be called, (laughs) they were being billed as from being from parts unknown. But uh, Starman was, there's just something about his look. We talk about El Santo and we talk about Juan and this superhero mystique that a lot of these masked luchador wrestlers have. And even though there wasn't a lot relatively to pro wrestling, there was something about the way Starman was portrayed in the game. He was kind of shown as this superhero-esque, this very stoic, heroic character. And it really struck a chord with a lot of people. Something about that minimalist star on the face look became really iconic. And it's really stuck with people over the course of the past three and a half decades. But if you're a professional wrestling fan, No Mercy might be the greatest pro wrestling game of all time. But when it comes to required reading, when it comes to pro wrestling games, you have to play. Pro wrestling, the game, is definitely near the top of that list. And thankfully, we have it on the NSO app. I'm a huge sucker for really simple designs like this. I I love 
just sort of like these emotionless kind of like, you know, faceless characters like this. And it's just all about the design and the colors. I love stuff like that. So yeah, definitely shout out to Starman. A winner is you indeed. <laughs> See, the what Seth is referencing there is the wonderfully terrible translation. When you win a match in pro wrestling, <laughs> instead of saying player one wins or you're the winner, the translation actually comes out to a winner is you, which is uh, chef's kiss, beautiful cringe from the early days of video games. It's bad, but it's so good. It is. It's it's bad, but good and, and wonderful and terrible all at the same time. I, I really thought about putting Amazon on the list. I really thought about putting one of the other characters on the list. There is a terribly racist Korean character, admittedly, in pro wrestling that does not remotely hold up well today. But aye, aye, aye. there was several other characters. There was two American characters. One had like the claw death grip attack, which I which I loved and thought was great. There was uh, a couple others, but ultimately I just I I could not deny Starman. And just talking about Mike Herman and Retromania again for a second, going back to that interview that we had, we actually talked a little bit about Starman in that interview. And I don't know, the stars would have to align, pun intended, but <laughs> man, it would be so, so cool if Retromania was able to somehow get Starman and Amazon. Oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing if they were able to get Starman and Amazon into Retromania. That would be amazing. All the IRL wrestlers they already have in that game is is fantastic. But if they were able to start getting if they were able to get the rights to Starman and Amazon, oh, 10 out of 10. Maybe the stars will align. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> so who knows? They have teased a lot of DLC coming down the road, but uh I don't know. I think that's it for me gushing about pro wrestling and pro wrestling video games for right now. But uh, what about you guys? Are you guys pro wrestling fans? Do you love pro wrestling video games? Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and tell us who are your favorite pro wrestling themed characters that have ever appeared on Nintendo consoles. But Seth, as it turns out, there's actually a little bit of similarities between Starman and the game we're about to be talking about. The game that in a few days, we'll be celebrating its 25th anniversary because it also happens to feature a star man, in a sense. This is true. But here, March 9th, here in just a few days, we will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of one of the greatest RPGs ever made. The Super Nintendo Classic, the seminal, the iconic Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven stars and we thought for its silver anniversary we would give it the full all-in retrospective treatment right now you know if you really think about it seth like, how crazy is it? We just had Pokemon Day. The 25th anniversary of Super Mario RPG is coming up in just a few days. Just think about that time in 1996 when in back-to-back -back weeks, we got two of the greatest, most influential RPGs ever made. It's, I remember really vividly Super Mario RPG, man. This happened a couple of times to me, just really quickly. 
we talk a we talk a lot on this show. Well, not a lot, but every now and then Blockbuster comes up, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I have a very vivid memory of seeing Super Mario RPG sitting there on the Blockbuster shelf. I don't know how long it had been out by the time I finally played it, but I saw it there. And RPG is so ingrained in the nomenclature today that, you know, I think a lot of gamers know inherently just what RPG is. But I saw that word or that acronym and didn't know what I was looking at. I knew Mario, but I didn't know what Super Mario RPG meant. And I rented that game so much. And this happened a couple of times. I actually rented that game so much. My local blockbusters, you just want to buy this. <laughs> you know, like you've, you've rented this so much. You just want to just buy this like straight up. So I, I wound up getting my copy of super Mario RPG that way because I just kept taking it out and taking it out of blockbuster. And, um, it, I, I love this game special game, definitely an important game. And yeah, 25 years, man, I, I can't believe it. Um, just to kind of get into the, the really quickly, the facts of it, um, yeah, March 9th, 1996 was its initial release in Japan for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, developed by Square, not Square Soft, not Square Enix, Square, and published by Nintendo. And I know this is a game that is very special to you. If it weren't for Chrono Trigger, it might be my favorite RPG of all time. And yeah, I think that just goes to show the strength of the RPG market on the Super Nintendo because there are several. RPGs on the Super Nintendo that many consider to be among the greatest of all time. Mario RPG, Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, Secret of Mana. So, I mean, what a time to be alive. The problem was we we didn't actually really know it at the time, or at least a lot of us didn't. Because in in order to accurately tell the story of Super Mario RPG, you really need to understand where square was in the early 90s because you know rpgs were selling incredibly well over in japan but here over in the west the more methodical type of gameplay that rpgs had wasn't catching on nearly as well us americans were much more action oriented so rpgs weren't really i know right so rpgs really weren't (laughs) catching on as well square was the the name, well, Square and another company they would eventually merge with were the names in RPGs in Japan, but you know, they they just hadn't been able to to really break into the Western market. Obviously, that was evidenced by the fact that you know, multiple Final Fantasy games hadn't been brought over to the West. That was evidenced by many of the low sales numbers. Just to illustrate that fact, even in 1995, talking about Chrono Trigger, Chrono Trigger in Japan sold over 2 million copies on the Super Nintendo. But in the West, in America, Super Nintendo sales of Chrono Trigger didn't even break 300,000. Right. How crazy is that? And Square was really trying to find that breakout title for them. They knew the games were being reviewed incredibly well. The games were quality, but they just weren't able to really reach that mass audience, unfortunately. They tried it with a couple titles. Final Fantasy Mystic Quest very famously was a much more stripped down, much more quicker paced version of the uh, of the RPG genre. 
But even that didn't wind up selling very well. And again, like I just said, one of the greatest RPGs ever made, my personal favorite RPG ever made, a game that we did a retrospective on uh, last year that you should definitely go back and check out, Chrono Trigger, that didn't even break 300,000 in the West. So they were trying to really find that breakout title for them. And as luck would have it, they wound up having a business meeting in early 1994 with Nintendo. And according to an interview that Super Mario RPG director Chihiro Fujioka did back in 1995, uh, they just had their business meeting with Nintendo because Square and Nintendo had a very, very good relationship, obviously. Square was releasing a ton of games on Nintendo's platforms. And during this meeting in early 1994, apparently the subject was broached about them working on something together because in the early mid 90s Nintendo wasn't nearly at their IP hoarding worst that we kind of know them as now this was before the CDI before Nintendo had really been burned by you know really bad partnerships so the idea was broached about Nintendo and Square collectively working on a game together because Nintendo knew that Square's games were really quality experiences and Square knew that Mario games sold phenomenally well in the tens of millions. Well, and I, and I think another thing too that's important to consider is that if you're trying to tap into a Western audience, if you're trying to have a character that will appeal to all ages, to appeal to, you know, even girls, you know, uh, this is kind of still in that time, right? Where you, you, you have this problem and you need a character and you need a, a legacy that will be able to take on the brunt of that. And really, Mario, as he does with so many things, fits that bill perfectly. And Square realized that. But you guys have to understand, when Super Mario RPG was first shown off, when we first learned about this game, despite the number of spinoffs that Mario was already getting at that point, games like Mario Kart and even Yoshi's Cookie and Mario Paint, all of these weird games, they still somehow felt natural for the plumber. But Mario in an RPG, now that was a bizarre combination for us back in the mid-90s. Imagine how you felt when you first heard about Kingdom Hearts. What's funny is this game kind of is similar to Kingdom Hearts in that way. Yeah. You know, if you think about it. It is kind of like you you take the the com you know the concept of Disney married with Square. I mean, this is quite literally the concept of Nintendo married with Square. So I mean, yeah, if you're familiar with that juxtaposition there, that is very similar to what it was like in the nineties when this came out. And it wasn't just for the consumer base. It was also a really bizarre, really hard concept to work with for the developers. There's a, a relatively famous story about how when the idea of a Mario RPG was first pitched to Nintendo, they did it with a picture of Mario wearing a cape and holding a sword, riding a horse. And, right. and allegedly Shigeru Miyamoto looked at that and just said, no, that's not right. Uh, and it took a long time for them to really find the the tone and the aesthetic and the mechanics. Uh, apparently, before they were able to get to a quote-unquote brass tacks, like uh, Chihiro Fujioka said in that same interview, 
before they were able to get to brass tacks, it took a long time for them to really flesh out what this game was going to look like. And one of the things that that happened through early development, many of Square's RPGs, especially in the early and mid-90s, had this pixelated, top-down aesthetic. If you go back and play any right. of the old Final Fantasies, you'll see exactly what we're talking about. It's a top-down map with uh, an overworld and towns and your character moving around in a very 2D environment. But this was in 1994, and there was a very influential game that was just about to be released called Donkey Kong Country. Mm-hmm. And while working on this hybrid Mario game RPG, the people over at Square said, no, that's good. We'll do that now. And in research, I actually found a report. Uh, the people over at Square wound up using the same silicon workstation that the Rare developers used in creating the pre-rendered graphics and pseudo 3D models for Donkey Kong Country. So it was a lot of the same technology being used to create both games, which does make perfect sense when you look at them next to each other. But I mean, it's not just the aesthetic. The The look of the game has become famous over the years, but the, the gameplay, how do you make the game a Mario RPG? And that was a question that the developers asked themselves a lot. You know, Mario's a platformer. How much platforming do we put in? But this is an RPG. How much swords and magic and sorcery do we put in? And it took them a long time to figure that out, so much so that they decided just to ask the fans. Yeah, so they wound up taking this game after, you know, they'd already kind of got the concept phase down, the art style, the graphics engine, and they basically took this to the 1995 V-Jump Festival in Japan. And yeah, Shigeru Miyamoto and Chihiro Fujioka basically took the stage, showed off the game, and showcased different combat styles, basically, and was basically were going to proceed based on fan reaction. They were like, hey, are the fans going to prefer a more typical Final Fantasy-style combat system? Are they going to prefer seeing Mario utilizing his iconic hammer and his jumping ability? And, well, we know how the story goes. Yes, obviously we know the game turned out and Mario does indeed use his fire powers and his jumps and his hammer. But based on reports from the conference, the sentiment was overwhelmingly in favor of Mario's classic abilities as opposed to Mario using yeah. more traditional Final Fantasy style swords and sorcery, which uh, obviously was the right call. But it's just so interesting to see, because this was already after a essentially an alpha version of the game had already been built. There was already environments and a lot of 3D models. Oh, yeah. Obviously, a lot of that still needed to be refined, but they were well into development of this game. And it's so weird that it's, it's almost like what happens with Kickstarter now, where they do as much as they can with a title and they create essentially the pitch version. It's almost like Square and Nintendo were pitching it to directly to the audience directly to their consumer base. And that's just really, really interesting to me. It really is. This kind of thing that would never happen today. You know, oh, no. it's so candid. I, I, I really like that. It's, it's that kind of like nascent stage of video game development that I really appreciate. And we, we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. And I mean, it typically ends up 
you know, creating a really special experience. And, you know, we, we talked earlier about how this game really needed to appeal to a lot of different people to really tap into that Western market in particular. And I think that's really evident in the game itself. There's a lot of stuff in there that is very, you know, it, it, it very much is like appealed to all ages, kind of, I wouldn't go as far as to call it baby's first RPG. It is got a, a hardcore bent to it, but it is very much like if you are not familiar with this and in the typical Nintendo way, it sort of eases you into it. And another thing that was kind of interesting was the way they approached the battle system. And I, I think that for a lot of people, it is probably easy to take it, you know, take for granted the battle system that we're kind of used to with Mario RPGs, the timing based battle systems that seem, I, I don't want to go as far as to say commonplace, but we're used to it by now. But back then, that was very unique. And for that game to have a timing based battle system, evidently based around a child's toy, that, uh, that, that was actually the inspiration for the timing based uh, battle system they wound up going with. And um, I, I just, I think that that is so interesting that not only are they approaching this brand new idea, but they're actually innovating gameplay as well. Yeah, one of the really interesting ways they married up Mario's more action-oriented gameplay with the RPG mechanics is in most RPGs, especially at that time, the vast majority of RPGs were turn-based. They were essentially menu games. You would choose your attacks, you would choose your magic, your skills, your items from a menu, and then your characters would perform those actions. You'd see what happened, and then you'd go back through the menus, and you would choose your next actions. But in Mario RPG, it is a much more active battle. Yes, you still do those same things. You still choose your attacks or magic or items from a menu, but the majority of the actions have supplemental button presses that can make them more effective which made which added an entirely new layer to the combat system there were a lot of attacks where if you hit the button at the right time it would do more damage there were attacks that required you to hold a button for a certain number of time there were attacks that required you to mash a button to do more damage there was a lot of different little micro games a lot of different little qtes almost these almost really feel like yeah. the precursor to qtes but every attack every item use even you could even enhance items this way and it made for a much more engaging much more active battle system they were trying to figure out what really battle system would fit for this mario game and yeah going back to that interview that i've already referenced a couple times to hero fujioka specifically mentioned that they didn't want to look directly to any other of square's uh, franchises they didn't want to just necessarily cut and paste mechanics from something like Final Fantasy or one of their other game franchises. Uh, but ultimately something they wound up going with was something relatively similar to what you did see in Final Fantasy around that time. You had a menu system that was based around attacks, uh, special skills or magic items, and then defense or escape. But one of the really cool things I think they did with that was instead of it just showing up like a menu, each of the different options was tied to a specific face button on the controller, yes. which I thought was really, really cool. The A button was used for all of your attacks and enhancing your attacks. The B button was used for your defense and running away. The Y button was used for all of your magic. And then the X button was used to choose and enhance all of your items. 
And the way that was implemented felt really seamless, really interesting, and really cool. So between all of the time tits, that entire mechanic between the interface with all the different face buttons, they did change up the, the battles quite a bit. And another thing when it comes to the battles is there was so much personality. Obviously, there's so much personality emanating from most of this game with the characters and even the enemies, but even the attacks themselves were so much more animated because when it came to turn-based RPGs around the time, typically the animation you would see is maybe a character taking two steps up and then a two-frame animation of them slicing the sword, and then you may just see uh, a slash effect go across the screen. The animations were so much more in-depth and had so much more intricacy to them here in this game. And that's another thing that really made the battle stand out and really made them feel a lot more dynamic. I still have very vivid memories of Mario just running right up to Goombas and just doing punch combos and Bowser throwing this huge chain chomp around that basically just ate through everything in its path. By today's standards, it may seem fairly tame, but for 1996, this was really on a whole different level than everything we'd seen before in terms of the presentation of these battles. Yeah, I mean, everything from the sound design of it, you can almost hear, you know, what the hits sounded like and the, you know, all the the victory themes and all that. And that way it kind of has that Final Fantasy influence still. And I I will definitely talk about the music later on, Mm -hmm. but um, man, uh, yeah, and, and I love that. Just to touch back on that kind of four-button layout, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I love how the game takes so many steps to streamline and simplify itself as an RPG. And that's that's the thing that I think still kind of appeals to me today with Super Mario RPG is the, th- the fact that it's not, you know, some overlong, you know, overblown experience. I mean, you can play through this game in 20, 25 hours and... It's well paced and it feels very palatable and it's just like a a nice little story that is self-contained and, and is very much its own thing. And I just that's that's one of the things I love most about this game. And I think that was probably, you know, a major focus for them to again try to appeal to that wider audience. They they really struck a pitch perfect uh balance here with this game. And I, I mean I'll never forget <laughs> to talk about the story a little bit, such as it is. I'll never forget the way that that game starts. And basically it starts like a, a traditional Mario situation where you're going out to rescue the princess, princess toadstool, by the way, in this game, uh, not peach yet. Um, very much going after Bowser and it, and it's not long before you are immediately greeted with this unique battle system. It's like, what is this? You know, it's so cool and so different and so, groundbreaking. Well, one of the things that really helped with the pace of the game specifically was even though it'll take you only 25 or so hours to beat this game, it is not going to feel like 25 hours because no action elements they added to the battle system were not the only action oriented elements they put into Mario RPG. They knew that because they had the plumber, they had access to these characters that they were going to have to make the most out of them. And whereas with most RPGs, you would have your battle system and then you'd have interactions with NPCs and interactions with merchants. In Mario RPG, there were a ton of different little mini games that really helped break up the pace of the game. And if you go back and play it, there's probably more than you even 
remember. Going back to the Donkey Kong Country influence on the graphics, there is a huge, very memorable minecart section of Mario RPG. There is yeah. like a whack-a-mole Goomba thing. There's an entire Yoshi's Island subset of minigames where you can race Yoshi against his, basically his Wario counterpart, Boshi. As a matter of fact, speaking of his Wario counterpart in Japan, Boshi was actually called Washi because he was, yep. for all intents and purposes, Yoshi's what? Why haven't we seen Boshi again? How great would it be if they made like another Wario Land game and you could ride on Boshi instead of Yoshi? That'd be awesome. I, I would love it if every character had that sort of uh, Waluigi counterpart or whatever it's called. That'd be fantastic. But again, there were just all of these little gameplay uh, quirks, all of these little systems that they put in, in addition to the battle system. There was the run-up uh, Booster Hill. There was uh, the waterfall section. There was the barrel riding section. There was so, so many different uh, little mini game systems in this game. It really felt like you were constantly doing something different. You would always come back to the battle system. That was obviously the core system in the game, but it felt like you would do a few of those and then you were doing some new gameplay mechanic variation. And that was another one of the things that really helped set this game apart because so many games try to do stuff like that. They try to implement so many systems and very few of them succeed in as many of them as Mario RPG was able to do. Yeah, I mean, you've got the casino. Like, there's a lot of things to really shake it up. There's there's a lot of, like, you're, you're never doing, again, you've got the meat and potatoes battle system, but you're not doing the same thing for too long. So just a, a beautifully paced game. And, you know, I, <laughs> that's another thing. The world map, right? Which they... Uh, you know, again, you can ha- you can see some Final Fantasy influence, but this is not a traditional take on the world map. This is much more in line with something like a Mario or a Donkey Kong or something like that. And they even, if you're familiar with the more recent Mario RPGs, it kind of has that structure where it's almost these like it's almost these individualized biomes, you know, that that have like locations within them, but it's all in this interconnected world. I, I I really like it. I can still hear the world map music in my head whenever I think about it. <laughs> but even though it is an RPG and you you know you talk about these being biomes, there is still very much a Mario World level, a Mario World yes. world feel to a lot of these environments and a lot of these stages. So again, striking that balance between being a Mario game and being an RPG game. But there was so much they tried to pack into these games with the enhanced visuals, with the 3D uh, pre-rendered models and the environments and all of the different battle mechanics. And like we said, the uh, really impressive and dynamic battle animations. There was so much to this game that Nintendo wound up having to to enhance the standard Super Nintendo cartridges, they actually had to add extra chips to the Super Nintendo cartridges, specifically the SA1 chip to each of the cartridges to make sure that the game was able to run. These were actually enhanced chips for these games. These were not your standard Super Nintendo game chips. And ironically enough, underpowered game cartridges would wind up becoming an issue later on down the road between Square and Nintendo, but we'll get to that in a little while. And going back to the personality of the game, 
the way the characters are animated, the dialogue in the game. I mentioned Starman earlier on. Uh, there's a, a now legendary character called Gino who was introduced in this game. He's basically this celestial star ninja warrior. No clue why in the world he ever became popular. But there was also a character called Malo. <laughs> and the writing of the game, it's so funny. And then like, there's the entire idea with the story. Yeah, I mean, kind of like I alluded to earlier, the the game starts with a very typical Mario setup. You know, going to rescue Princess Toadstool from Bowser. And basically, during this battle, a giant living sword comes careening through the sky, basically going through it, breaking through the Star Road, which is kind of what what sets up the events of the uh, of the story it is called legend of the seven stars this is because those seven stars need to be used to repair the star road and i like this a lot too because i mentioned that this needed to appeal to all ages this has such a like wonderful kind of story setup it's about like making sure that people can still grant wishes you know because star road being broken means that the pathway to wish fulfillment is no longer available like it's all about restoring like wishes to the world. I really like that. And um, anyway, that that's basically the, the core setup of the game. And yeah, like you said, you, you end up interacting with a, uh, a totally a tadpole yep. uh, named Malo. <laughs> who's this uh, little, you know, that, that's kind of the, the joke there is that they, you know, he's, he's a tadpole in quotes Um you know, he's totally a frog and it's a huge revelation. We learn that he is not when of course he is just this cute little fluffy cloud prince. And, you know, talking about the humor of the game, there's even, they even punctuate that reveal by doing the full dun dun sound effect in the game. <laughs> yes. Where a bunch yes. of people show up out of nowhere, like what? And that's probably something that, I mean, like, yeah, it, the personality and humor of this game, I think, is so important to what makes it so special. Like, this is more or less where we get a lot of the personality that we would go, that we would see get carried forward into kind of traditional Mario representations of these characters. The kind of, like, spunkiness of Toadstool, the the team up with Bowser. By the way, you're not, he's not joining your team. You're joining his team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's how he sees it. It's, it's, you, you get that iconic kind of, it's always great when you have a team up with Bowser and um, you, just seeing these representations of these characters kind of get carried forward into the future. This was really the start of that. This is really what injected personality really into these characters. And yeah, you've got Malo, you've got Gino, who you've already talked about, who is a phenomenal character. I mean, this game really kind of nailed the personality department, even though it has a really simple story setup. They get a lot of mileage just with the humor and the writing and just the it goes to show that you don't need. I mean, it, we love games like Chrono Trigger that have very heady, complicated stories, but you absolutely can get by with the strength of your characters and the strength of your writing. And in that way, Mario RPG still feels like a nintendo game you know yeah and specifically when it comes to the main character mario rpg came out right before 
uh, Charles Martinet really started to do his iconic work with the plumber. So Mario is a completely silent protagonist in Mario RPG, but the emotive animations and the humor that they're able to really channel through Mario in so much of what he does. A lot of Mario's communication in Mario RPG is done through pantomime and done through essentially right. little acting skits to the point where sometimes the characters even actually transform into other characters. It's so beautiful to see how Mario actually communicates with the other characters in the game. Despite the fact that everybody else in the game has dialogue, Mario doesn't. He's still Mario. He's still a silent protagonist at this point in the franchise. But it's just the way he communicates is just so funny. It's so good. It makes for some of the most memorable moments in the game. Uh, one of my favorite kind of like running gags, recurring bits is like when people need Mario to prove that he's Mario, basically, just by having him jump. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And just speaking of the the characters and and you know and the world in general, the I I, I want to shout out some of the bosses in this game <laughs> because man, this game has got some great bosses. No shortage of bosses. They did not hold back. Uh, they they have just some really again full of life and personality. I, I think of you know some of my favorites, of course, Booster. You know, we we mentioned Booster <laughs> a little bit earlier. Booster is uh, AKA not Wario. <laughs> yeah, not Wario. We got Punchinello, the the Axum Rangers, AKA not Super Sentai. <laughs> and the Axum Rangers actually brings up another good point about the game. Uh, Reinforcing that idea of personality even more is all of the, the the references and overt Easter eggs. And a lot of games, Easter eggs are, are fairly hidden, but there are a lot of really good Easter eggs that are very much out in the open if you're able to come across them. And they do add, they do just add so much personality to these games. You know, you talk about the Axum Rangers, which are, of course, a very clear nod to Super Sentai Power Rangers for us in the West. But I, there are a ton of other Nintendo characters show up in the game. Link makes right. a cameo. Samus makes a cameo. There's even an R-Wing model. And, you know, you just mentioned Punchinello. There's an R-Wing model you can find in that mine. That R-Wing model is actually sitting right next to two F-Zero vehicle models. Yes, Yes. Uh, there's even a lot of Final Fantasy references. Specifically, there's a dragon Yoshi that you fight at some point in the game that's actually called Bahamut, which is, of course, a reference to the Final Fantasy summon of the same name. So for for fans really of any for fans really of either franchise, there are a ton of very knowing, very overt references, Easter eggs, and and things that you, you can really find in this game. Again, just reinforcing that idea of personality because I know we may be hitting that word home, but there is so much. A game can really succeed on its personality. One of the best examples of that I can think of is the Scott Pilgrim beat-em-up game. That game is just oozing personality and it is all the better for it of course the game systems are really solid in the game but super mario rpg uh scott pilgrim the game those are really good examples of how much a a really strong personality a really good uh comedic personality can also really help elevate an entire package 
Yeah, and speaking about, you know, talking about that that Final Fantasy influence and reference, there's an optional hidden boss in this game, Culex, which is an overt Final Fantasy reference. Um, and it's amazing. He's, you know, very much in the style of these old games. He's like the secret boss who is like actually more powerful than the, the real boss, you know, and Culex is even rendered in a completely different style than the game. He's rendered in that typical Final Fantasy pixel art, you know, Final Fantasy music is playing. It's like, so like that, that definitely checks the Final Fantasy box there in case there was any doubt. Yeah, and even beyond that, there's even more references in the Culex fight. Culex is accompanied by four elemental crystals, which are a very yep. clear, obvious nod to the four heroes of light and the elemental crystals motif from early Final Fantasies games. If you're able to beat Culex, the actual Final Fantasy victory fanfare plays. Yes. Again, Easter eggs, references, developers, if you're out there, if you do it right, they can really add a lot to your title. And that's what they did here in Mario RPG. But, you know, it seems like when we're talking about a lot of the greatest of all time of anything of any video game genre, be it action games, platformers, RPGs, it really feels like a lot of those that are in the conversation for greatest of all time all happen to have stunning soundtracks. Yeah, this is no different. I mean, Super Mario RPG's soundtrack by Yokoshima Mora, who is one of my favorite composers of all time. Yeah, Yokoshima Mora, probably best known for her work on The Punisher or Live I'll Live. She also worked on a couple other kind of indie video game franchises like Street Fighter, uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, uh, Kingdom Hearts, uh, yeah. Breath of Fire, Legend of Mana, uh, Mario and Luigi Partners in Time, uh, Radiant Astoria. Just just little indie games, you know. <laughs> Final Fantasy 15, and even the aforementioned, we talked about uh, Max Thunder and Streets of Rage 4. Yokoshima Mora also did that. So let's. the woman is tenured when it comes to being a video game composer. My lord, she has got one heck of an IMDb page. Yeah, and she actually, she accredits Mario RPG for being a turning point in her career because, you know, yeah, she she's extremely versatile which I think is very much the, when, when you look at her uh, her history and, and the games that she's composed for, yeah. I mean, she even worked on Final Fight. Um, she even did, uh, uncredited, but she even did music for Gargoyles Quest. And, and yeah, Street Fighter II was probably her, her sort of breakout. And then you, you know, so she's doing these kind of punchy, more action-oriented soundtracks, you know, Breath of Fire. And I mean, the, these are, these are compositions that she's very much being known for at this point, but then you get to something like a Super Mario RPG where it's a much more, and you know, of course it does remix some of the classic Mario, you know, Koji Kondo compositions, and it does even involve some Final Fantasy compositions from Nobuo Dematsu, but she puts her own stamp on it with this kind of whimsical, fun, bouncy soundtrack that is totally unlike anything that she did previous. And yeah, I mean, for me, Yoko Shimomura represents, uh, when, when I think of her, I think of Kingdom Hearts, and that's probably what she's most known for. But she, I mean, what she brought to this game should not be overlooked because the soundtrack to Super Mario RPG is very, very special. And, you know, 
she is definitely Shima Moore is it's hard, man, but she's probably in my top three favorite composers of all time. Uh, And this soundtrack is one of my favorites of hers. Well, just like with the gameplay and the visuals, how do you create a Mario RPG? How do you mix those two uh, ideologies? How do you mix those two intellectual properties together? And just like from a gameplay perspective, from a musical perspective, I'm sure it was just as hard to really narrow down. I'm sure it was just as hard to nail down. But again, it's just a phenomenal soundtrack. Again, right up there with some of the greats. We've already mentioned Nobuo Imatsu, legendary composer. Yasunori Mitsuda, we're talking about Chrono Trigger, another legendary composer. These... It's amazing what they were able to do even before we were able to have fully orchestrated soundtracks on these games. What they were able to do with effectively chiptune music is is something that's amazing. Some of the best video game soundtracks of all time still come from the Super Nintendo era. I mean, I know we're not talking about Final Fantasy VI, but that scene from Final Fantasy VI where uh, Celeste throws herself off the cliff like that has no that's legitimately one of the most striking one of the most emotional moments in video game history and yet it was done with pixel and chiptunes so really really amazing what truly talented individuals are able to do with the tools at their disposal and for me personally I'm a big little Nemo guy so Yoshishima Mamora doing the soundtrack for Capcom's Little Nemo game uh, holds a special place <laughs> in my heart personally, but it's, see, that was the thing. She did a lot of work for Capcom. Like we've mentioned little Nemo and final fight and gargoyles quest. And of course, street fighter two, which we've already mentioned a couple times, man, it really feels like this is almost like a Yokoshima more tribute episode, but <laughs> she was fantastic at those, but she really wanted to do more classical style compositions, which is one of the reasons she went to Square, so she could have those fantasy settings so, so that she could have these more, like she wanted to do, classical compositions. So I wonder what she was like when uh, when Square came to her and said, hey, we want you to do a Mario game soundtrack. It's like, that. that's... That's not why I came to Square. <laughs> yeah, but it's so cool that they, you know, that they did allow her to kind of stretch her wings there and and really put her own personal stamp on on that game. And like I said, she does consider it to be a turning point. And and worth noting that she to this day, when it comes to the Mario and Luigi series, is the composer and has been since they spun off into its own series. So that's a whole other can of worms. And yeah, Yoko Shimomura has been there every step of the way when it comes to Mario RPGs. So a uh, huge shout out to her. I mean, she is an absolute Titan in, in video game music. So, and, and this soundtrack is out of all of her amazing catalog. This soundtrack is one of my favorites that she's done. It's, it's that good. And thankfully when the game did wind up releasing in mid 1996, all the critics and most importantly, the audience was able to see everything that we have been talking about. And this did wind up being Square's big breakthrough in the West. Not only did it sell so much better than most of their previous American releases, but, and I'm actually glad you brought this up earlier, Seth, turns out that uh, for a 14-week span, Super Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars was the most rented game in America. That I Yeah, that sounds about right. That was me. <laughs> and 
again, younger gamers may not realize this, but in the mid nineties, video game rentals were a big part of the business, a huge part of the business. Blockbuster and Hollywood video did a ton of sales when it came to video game rentals, because not only was it so much cheaper than buying the game outright in many cases, but games, unlike movies, which you could very easily finish in a single sitting over the course of two hours, video games very often were not the case uh, when it came to, you know, being able to finish something within a single afternoon. 25 hours may seem like chump change when it comes to video game time investment these days, but 25 hours is still quite a bit longer than standard movie length. So people were having to re-rent things multiple times to be able to get the most out of these games. And that just continued to flow more and more money into these rental company revenues. And But it's still very, very interesting to know that for so long, after years of RPGs really not being able to take a handle in the Western market for this one to come out, and for so long, for three and a half months, to think about it, we are not quite three and a half months into 2021. Imagine if one game had been the top seller or the top renter every week for this year so far. That's essentially what Mario RPG did. And it was a huge yeah. success for Nintendo and Square. Yeah, for, for my part, when, you know, like I said, I rented it so much, the store literally just said, hey, you should just buy this. And it was because I just liked hanging out with these characters, right? I just, I replayed that game over and over after I had beaten it, just because, you know, this is what we've really been harping on here is just because of the personality, the characters, the world, everything about it that made it so special was so appealing to me again, that that whimsical story there that that really appealed to me and and clearly many many others to the point where i just wanted to play it over and over and over again and yeah i loved all kinds of rpgs before i even knew what they were but super mario rpg was the one that really got its hooks in me so yeah i mean in terms of sales i i was probably a a good portion of that but i think it's safe to say the company square really knew what they had before this game was going to release. I think they knew they really had a hit on their hand because reportedly a sequel, Mario RPG 2, was being pitched to yep. Nintendo before Mario RPG 1 even released. So there were already preliminary discussions about doing a follow-up to Mario RPG 2 before they even had the first numbers on the original game. Very famously, though, that would never come to pass because to really understand the full story of super Mario RPG, you have to understand what happened in the following months after its release, because just a few months after Mario RPG was released to the masses, we got the Nintendo 64. Right. And that sounds like a good thing. That sounds like the kind of thing. Well, I mean, yeah, great. And square just developed games for the N64, right? Well, the N64, you know, famously decided to stick with cartridges. And that was a problem. Yeah. So Nintendo, you know, with a lot of PlayStation and Xbox fanboys, Nintendo might have a reputation of being an underpowered console. And compared to them, admittedly, it is. But that really came to a head with the Nintendo 64 because the Nintendo 64 cartridges. They were not able to do everything that Square needed them 
to do. And Sony, with their brand new PlayStation, after Nintendo had been burned by the CDI, after Nintendo decided to bail on the project they were working on with Sony, Sony wound up releasing their own competitive console on the market and luring Square over with their promises of versatility, with their promises of being able to do everything that Square wanted to do. Because once Square got a taste of that 3D visual aesthetic and next-gen graphics and capabilities, they were hooked. And they were working on something far more ambitious than even Super Mario RPG was. And they knew that the Nintendo 64 wasn't going to be able to hold on to it. So Square, in a move that really shocked the entire video game world, right after the release of Super Mario RPG, bolted, and jump ship over to Sony. Yeah, with the release of Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VII, basically, I, I would say, and I think a lot of people would say, that Final Fantasy VII is probably the reason, at least for the PS1, probably the sole reason the PS1 had a hold on the market. When it came to RPGs, especially. There were a couple good mascots. There were some really good games on the PlayStation. You know, you had Crash and you had Jet Moto and you had Metal Gear Solid. But trying to quantify the hype around Final Fantasy VII, trying to quantify how excited people were watching those cinematic TV trailers, watching all of these advertisements, watching all the things that this game was going to be capable of on the PlayStation, people were so incredibly hyped and they went out and bought PlayStations in droves. Admittedly, Final Fantasy VII was the main reason I bought a PlayStation because once sure. I played Super Mario RPG, that turned me into an RPG fan. And a lot of people credit Final Fantasy VII with being this incredibly trailblazing, incredibly influential series. But you could very, very easily make the argument that Final Fantasy VII essentially just walked through the door that Mario RPG opened. Right. 100%. It's unfortunate that those technical limitations led to Square and Nintendo parting ways. So much so that despite the fact that Square wound up releasing a couple other console games in Japan before they jumped ship, 1996 was the last time that they would release a game for Nintendo until 2002, until the end of 2002, six years later completely surpassing the entire N64 console cycle. And as a matter of fact, before they wound up merging with Enix, the only two other games that they wound up publishing on Nintendo consoles were two GBA games. So, so this is a little stat that I find incredibly interesting because Super Mario RPG was essentially conceived as a way for Square to finally get a foothold in the American console market. And yet, under the Square banner, that would wind up being the final console game released on a Nintendo console. They finally got that foothold like they wanted, and then that was it. That was the last game as Square that Nintendo would publish on a Nintendo console once they finally got that foothold before they finally wound up merging with Enix in late 2002-2003. I just find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, those wounds were deep. You know what I mean? Especially, we talk all the time. I mean, Japan's a very honor-based 
society. It's a very honor-based culture. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of this, even just in the realm of Nintendo. You mentioned the Philips thing. There's obviously the, the bad blood between Nintendo and Sony. And that's a whole other thing that we won't get into today. Maybe we will someday. Maybe we should someday. But the um, there, there's a lot of instances of this where... Nintendo has always played to the beat of their own drum. And if you want to join the band, great. But if you don't, then, you know, you can choose to walk and square, you know, they, they chose to walk and, uh, and yeah, those, like I said, those wounds run deep and that's the kind of thing that you, you won't see reconciled for a while. So it's not necessarily surprising, but it is an amazing statistic. And apologies to, are European fans because I didn't even realize this until this past week, but yeah. Europe didn't get one of the greatest RPGs of all time until 2008 on the Wii virtual yep. console. I'm sorry, guys. I really am. That happened a lot. That happened a lot with, uh, with European releases for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, I feel bad. I'm sorry for you guys. <laughs> Hopefully you got a chance to play it import or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> And I do find it very interesting as well that the split up, essentially the divorce of Nintendo and Square also wound up divorcing the Mario RPG franchise into two separate franchises because they yeah. did begin work on Mario RPG 2, but it would very famously come to be renamed Paper Mario. And then a few years after Paper Mario first came out and after a couple sequels were released, a new developer, headlined by a familiar face, Mr. Chihiro Fujioka, would also wind up developing and directing another Mario RPG franchise in the Mario and Luigi saga, and he would be bringing Yoko Shimomura with him in that endeavor. So it started with Mario RPG, and now we have two completely separate Mario RPG franchises. The, the game has left one heck of a legacy, again, celebrating its 25th anniversary here in just a couple days, still regarded as one of the best RPGs of all time, a absolute must play if you haven't already. It's available on the SNES Classic right now. I really hope it comes soon to the Super Nintendo NSO app. It's got to, absolutely. And, and yeah, they ended up putting it on the, like you said, the Wii and the Wii U Virtual Console, but that's the only way to play it right now. And, and yeah, the SNES Classic, it's like, put it on the Switch, you guys. And worth noting, too, that, you know, Square and, you know, Square Enix anyway, and Nintendo today are, you know, are totally on the up and up with each other. As a matter of fact, we've got Cloud and Sephiroth in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, which is hilarious. So... I, I think that's really cool too, just to come full circle with that. Yeah, it's crazy that we're playing that we can play Final Fantasy VII on a Nintendo console now, and that all has its roots way back into this crazy story twenty-five years ago. But have you guys ever played Super Mario RPG? I really hope so. If you haven't, remedy that as soon as possible. But if you have, what are your favorite memories with this seminal? classic let us know reach out to us on facebook and twitter and let us know very clearly we love talking about this game yeah we do and i think anyone who has played super mario rpg probably has memories of composing music for tadovsky with those pesky tadpoles and melody bay and our special guest knows a lot about music and probably also a lot about tadpoles so let's get into this week's indie showcase and welcome him to the show right now 
All right, dear listeners, we are super excited to be joined by our very special guest this week. From webcomic creator with Brawl in the Family to indie game developer at Bitfinity Games making Tadpole Trouble to co-author of Game Master Classified, currently live on Kickstarter, please welcome to All In right now, Matthew Toronto. Yay! Yay! Thank you. Wow, that is, that is quite an introduction. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say after that. I guess the... the... I feel like the spotlight's on me now. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm Matthew, and uh, thanks for having me today. Awesome! Thank you so much for joining us, brother. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. I just uh, I was just enjoying watching Sakurai say how he preferred Pyra as a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about yeah, we that. were Sakurai waifu confirmed. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for hanging out with us. We're huge fans of basically everything that you've been a part of. So well, it's, a, it's a huge treat. For those who don't know a lot about you, Matthew, you're, you're actually a musician, but you have a degree in graphic design. And we talked about Brawl in the Family, the webcomic that you started, uh, that you really made your name with. Uh, right. I, in amongst all of this, was actual game design something you were always trying to work toward? Pretty much. I mean, I've I've been a Nintendo fan since I, I played the NES when I was when I was three in like the in the late eighties, yeah. and mm-hmm. I'd I'd always kind of wanted to to make games or to do something in in that field because I because I guess it was it was a big part of my childhood and that always came, you know that makes a big impression on you, and I thought it'd be great to reach other people in that same way. So uh, yeah, I'd always wanted to make games. I'd always wanted to. I mean, I didn't always want to make comics. But I did draw a lot of comics like in middle school, and I sort of lucked out with Brawl in the Family. I sort of just stumbled upon it um, by by converting some of my doodles from class uh, onto these, you know, very simple looking digital images and, and put them on a message board. <laughs> and people liked them, and it just kind of took off from there. That's awesome. I, I think that is kind of like for a lot of us growing up playing Nintendo games and stuff. That is probably. The, the dream, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? I, I want to make games. I want to do this. <laughs> I, I really like games as an art form because you're kind of combining all these other art forms together. You know, you're combining storytelling right. and visual art and interactivity is kind of the big one, you know, and music, of course. So I, that's always been really appealing to me. Definitely. I With that kind of being the ultimate goal, the dream, what was one thing about making your own video game finally that was kind of everything you dreamed it would be? And what's one thing that was an unexpected challenge you didn't see coming? Um, well, with making the game, I really liked just the uh, creative freedom I had to just kind of have this blank canvas and and decide, you know, how the, the progression would go and the, determining the story and determining how the gameplay would be affected by the music. Um, I, right. I guess that's pretty broad, but I, I guess... in I, I generally like the creative freedom that 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 allowed me, and an unexpected hurdle was really the the how ev- how the development is really front loaded. Like you'll you'll put everything in place for like the first couple you know the first forty or fifty percent of development, and then the rest of the time it's just tweaking and bug testing. And there was always mm. this kind of like one step uh, two steps forward one step back thing when when you fix bugs something else will crop up and you got to fix that. So that's that's the part I, I did not like as much, but you know it's kind of part and parcel with with game development. I imagine even more so when you're trying to make such a unique game, and we're a, we're huge fans of really unique experiences like this. So how would how would you actually describe Tadpole Treble and the gameplay and the entire premise? Well, Tadpole Treble was 
is based off the, uh, a pretty simple idea. What if you could play through sheet music as as the obstacle in like uh, in, a, in a video game, like a scrolling game? Um, I just kind of built upon it from there. I've heard it described as a shoot 'em up recently in some reviews, which is pretty interesting to me. I can um, kind of see that. It's it's a little bit of a runner, but it's 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 a little different from most runners in that you have that musical element to it, and there's a little bit of freedom in, in how you decide to play. So so there there are shoot 'em up elements. <laughs> I'm <laughs> having a little bit of trouble like describing it. Uh, it's basically <laughs> like a musical game. So musical as in you know with songs and things happening. Every stage has some sort of event or quirk or character that stands out in some way or another. And um, we just kind of wanted to take the players on that kind of fun sort of uh, musical journey, I guess. Yeah, it's almost as if Kingdom Hearts Melody of Memories ripped right off you guys. Oh, I haven't tried that. I have to, I have to look into that now because I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of integrate the, those kind of mechanics. I, I had to ask. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times. Mm-hmm. Where how'd you come to the tadpole thing? Where where did that come from? <laughs> so the tadpole, um, I originally got the idea of the sheet music thing when I was watching my dad, who's who's a composer. He was making uh, songs in, in the program oh. called Finale, and the 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 little meter thing would scroll to the right, and the notes would come by. And my brain my brain's always kind of wired towards video games, and I was thinking, oh, you know, this kind of looks like you know like a scrolling game like Mario or platformer or something. And I thought it'd be cool to have the notes be the obstacles, but you're kind of bound by gravity in that sense. You know, you got to like jump over everything or duck or something. And I thought it'd be right. better if you had more of a free kind of control. You know, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't stuck to always, you know, being on the bottom. And then I thought, you know, it could be like a bird or it could be like a fish. And for whatever reason, I kind of gravitated towards uh, the tadpole, mostly because there weren't really like famous tadpole characters yet. You know, like I wouldn't mm. be competing with, with some well-known Tadpole. I mean, there's frogs, you know, obviously there's a lot of frogs in fiction that are well known, but tadpoles, not, not as much. And uh, I think also it might have been like a Mario RPG thing where I was like, <laughs> I, we were just about this. I was just about to say that. <laughs> well, I was like subconsciously thinking about the, yeah, the, the, um, what was that level called? The, where, where Mallow was, was raised and frog fuchsias and everything. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Tadpole, tadpole pond. pond. Was it called Tadpole Pond? <laughs> I think I use yeah. that in the game. I think that's the first level of Deadpool. <laughs> that's pretty funny. All right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah ironically, uh, before you joined us, we just finished up with a Mario RPG uh, retrospective. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary here in about three days. Oh, wow. That's nice. That's cool. So, yeah, I guess I guess uh, I always liked how you can record the very last part of that song that you that you learn in the game. And uh, mm. yeah, yeah, like like you can set where the tadpoles go and then they ended on the root of the of the note. So it always sounds good. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's kind of a combination of tadpoles reminding me of of like the shape of notes or like uh, an actual ah. conductor's baton, which is kind of where baton got her name. So yeah, uh, yeah com- combination of those different things. Nice. Well, the game originally came out back in 2016, for those who don't know, came out on Steam and on the Wii U. That's right. Uh, in the intervening five years, what was the catalyst? What really made you think, okay, it's time to re-release this game? Or, you know, we've got, Nintendo's got this, new platform that's been out for a while seems to be doing fairly well let's see if i can get a new audience what was ultimately the catalyst that made you decide to bring it back well it it had always been in our minds because tadpole trouble initially came out a little later than we'd liked and the Mm -hmm. wii had a a bit of a shorter lifespan than we initially expected as well uh usually nintendo systems have like five to six years turnaround uh the wii u launched in 
2012, I believe. And yep. then it um right. it was really kind of wrapping up in 2016. Like there was there wasn't a whole lot going on. And then, you know, they they showed the switch at the end of that year and, and launched it, of course, in March 2017, which is pretty much um yeah, I mean that's like four and a half years because it the Wii U came out in November, December of 2012. So we we knew, you know, we we knew we wanted to try to get to that that switch market because it was already uh it was already pretty much a hit coming out of the gate because of uh Breath of the Wild. So right. uh that that had always been on our mind, but we had first kind of bounced around a few other game ideas. And Michael and I, my brother, we we're kind of part-time developers, you know, we have kind of our own jobs on the side. Mm-hmm. And so we couldn't really devote like full time to to the game, you know, to game development. So we were kind of doing it on the side. And that's kind of part of the reason why it took a little bit longer. But I don't know if there was really one specific catalyst that that made us want to port Tadpole Trouble over. It was mostly, uh, you know, we, we, we came in on the tail end of the Wii U and we really wanted to uh, ha- get the game to have a second chance on, on the Switch. Absolutely. I, and I mean, look, it's, it's awesome. I love that people are kind of finally getting to experience this coming to that new audience. Mm-hmm. And again, as we've already talked about, it is a very, you know, music based game. The game features actually several different genres of music. I mean, you cover everything from swing to chip tune mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> you even sing vocals I do. Uh, at several different points in the game. Uh, what were some of your favorite tracks to compose and, and what was the process like for you? I, I really liked the vocal songs a lot because it kind of came back to that that level of having just control over what was happening. And, and you know, right. we would just say, what if, you know, these snails were singing this this Western song, you know, and we'd be like, OK, let's try that out, <laughs> you know, or what if the piranhas could make a gun and shoot themselves at the tadpole? And Mike would be like, can we do that? And I was like, well, we're making the game. Why not? You know, it was kind of a refreshing, <laughs> like just being being able to 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 run with these kind of silly ideas was a lot of fun. Um so with the music, the the two vocal songs that we 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 had started with, we we added more later, but the the two we had started with were uh Thunder Creek and Midnight Bayou. And Midnight Bayou was mm. was basically my big homage to uh, Frank Sinatra, who's who's one of my favorite yes. singers. Yeah, so I I really wanted to do like um kind of this 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 swing ballad for him. So that, I mean, that was, that was really fun to do. I kind of, I kind of got to stretch out a little bit as a musician and like write something in like an unusual time signature. Like it goes from six, four to five, four. Yes. Um, it, yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can, it, it's a little weird to explain, but it's like, da 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 four, five, one, two, three, four, right. five, da da. And, and it gives you a, a kind of unique, uh, yeah, gives it a kind of unique <laughs> rhythm to it. Uh, Thunder Creek was one of the first songs we wrote and it was just, um, I just really like the idea of Bataan growing in courage as she went along. And this song was basically about that. It was about how dangerous the the level was and then how impressed they were that she was getting through it. Um, and I just yeah. kind of, I, I think it's a little bit inspired by KK Western from Animal Crossing, mm. which is mm. one of my favorite, probably my favorite KK Slider song. I, I, I played Animal Crossing back in uh, like on the GameCube and that was the that was a song I just heard in one of the neighbors' houses, and I thought it was really cool. So I asked him to to play it for me the first time I I saw KK Slider, and I've always really liked that song since then. So I wanted to make kind of a like one of those sort of up tempo western songs that that kind of get you yeah. moving, you know. <laughs> That's kind of where those came from. Oh, and the last boss. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to spoil the last boss, but uh, that song was very heavily inspired by uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which is another one of my definitely. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Feed me, Seymour. Yeah, that that uh, <laughs> that that very boisterous kind of uh, voice and the and the that kind of like fifties rock sound. Was all the music in the game composed and created specifically for Tadpole Trouble, or were some of the compositions, some of the arrangements, stuff you had been working on, but uh, Tadpole Trouble essentially just gave you a vehicle to finally use it? Uh, that's a good question because I do that sometimes, and I'm trying to remember if any of the songs started off as something different i think there was one there's one part of thunder creek like the instrumental part that was originally written for a game that michael and i had an idea for a long time ago but it was it was too ambitious to make for our first game um but there was like a western part of that and and i took that melody that yeah i took that melody and put it in into thunder creek so it seemed like it fit really well there uh i don't think I think everything else was probably um, written for Tadpole Trouble that I can remember. You definitely, you know, and and for those that were fans of Brawl and the Family, you were no stranger to musical interludes with that too. Oh yeah, and, um, you know, now creating an entire music game. Do you think? And and we've already kind of touched on this, but is there a certain kind of storytelling power through music? I believe so. You know, music can really fire up the emotions like more than more than most things i think like if you put the right soundtrack to to what's happening you know to the story you're telling like it can it can have a powerful effect like i've, I've experienced that plenty of times when when watching things or or playing right. games you know um so i i think that helps give things i don't know this little extra bit of spice i suppose when you have when you have uh, a, a melody that can kind of work its way into your brain, you're humming it later and stuff and have associations with what was happening uh, when, when you heard that. Yeah, with Brawl and the Family, that, that, that wasn't really a conscious thing. I wasn't thinking, oh, I want to do music and comics. It just kind of came about uh, on the spot when I did the, uh, the DDD Grinch story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I thought it would be fun to do this song because the song's so well-known and it's such a like, classic scene of, of the Grinch going around stealing presents. That'd be fun to do a DDD spin on that, and that, that's kind of where it started. Yeah, and then you and then you wind up with the you know the final song, and you, and it, and you're right, it has like an emotional tinge to it for sure. Yeah. So, and one of the cool things about Tadpole Treble is that players can actually make it themselves. They have the composition mode, which allows them to build their own stages, write their own music with that system that you built. And I, I have to ask you this. I'm sure you've been asked this before because players back on Wii U and Steam in the original release were able to share them. Mm -hmm. um, are there any plans to, to bring that functionality to the Switch version? This, this was such a thing. Like, I was so sad we had to initially cut this because uh, right. the, the sharing feature was, it was like, it was based around the idea of, of the, the hardware having a camera. And we hadn't, we didn't, we, I mean, we didn't think of the future, like future systems not having cameras. But uh, right. yeah, you would you would read the QR code, and then for the switch, of course, there's there's not a QR code reader built in. So the the only other option we could do is have is to have a like a full online interface, like kind of like how Mario Maker does it. Which right. I I really would love to have that, but it's pretty difficult to implement. Like it's it's a it's kind of a uh, it's a tall order. It's like a yeah, it's like a, a bigger game than we. Are kind of thing, but I, I, I mean, I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say it's not gonna happen. But I'd really like to be able to find some sort of solution so that people could still share their 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 songs on the Wii U version. I mean, on the Switch version, because that's kind of like 
that's that's like the one thing I was I was really um, bummed out about having to cut because I really like that interactive like community aspect. So yeah, I'll 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 say for now I guess is we're still looking into it. It's a bit of a tentative <laughs> Reggie response there, but you know. That's fair. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about the we've talked a lot about the music in Tadpole Treble, and obviously mm-hmm. the music is very much at the heart of the experience. But uh, obviously, there is gameplay involved. It is a video game. <laughs> yes. Uh, how hard was it to kind of nail down what you really wanted to do from a gameplay perspective with Tadpole Treble? That was that was pretty tough because it, it, it's not really a genre that's that's that you can look to other examples and be like, let's just do what they did kind of thing. You know, like it, yeah. it went through some growing pains The I remember the first like super early version of, of a demo that was just kind of like my drawings on paper pasted in, you know, mm-hmm. when we played it, it was just, it was so difficult. It was oppressively difficult and you would smash into things for the, you know, the tadpole pond theme and everything. It, it, you would last maybe 15 seconds because it was going by so fast. The camera was way too close. There were way too many obstacles, like like land masses in the way. And initially, I didn't want people to just find like I was worried the the staff, the musical staff would be too open, like you could just get on one mm. line and not hit anything. So I made it more like going through a tunnel in like, you know, uh, Gradius or something where this you're just trying not to hit the sides of anything. And it was it was just way too hard. So we. We zoomed the camera out. We we removed most of the obstacles, and then we um, added in some some interactive elements, like the like hitting the symbols to to jump out of the water, and then hitting them again after that, which I really like the feel of. And once once I kind of got that jumping aspect in, like things started falling into place a lot better. And Michael had suggested the uh, the treble charge to give players um, a little bit more agency beyond just finding the perfect route. You know, they could they could right. determine when to uh, yeah, when to get that temporarily temporary invincibility? Um, but yeah, it, it it definitely involved a lot of trial and error before we found something that that felt you know we felt really satisfying to play for us. That's interesting. I know you said it was really hard trying to find any uh, games, or any you know similarities, any inspiration when it came to the gameplay. But was there anything you guys ultimately did take from any small ideas from any maybe even obscure places? said, eh, maybe if we do this, but tweak it, it'll be okay. Um, well, I know the composition mode was heavily inspired by uh, Mario Paint, which I was, oh, sure. I was a big yeah. fan of that. I was a big fan oh, of that yeah. growing up because of how intuitive it was. Like, it, it's a little limited, you know, in that you don't have sharps and flats, but it's still, you can still do a lot with it. And it's just very, it's very colorful and friendly to, to be able to just jump in and start making music in a, in a pretty intuitive way. So that was that was definitely uh, something we looked to for composition mode. For the main game, I think the gameplay wise, we didn't see a whole lot that we had borrowed from. But I think um, in terms of presentation, we we were actually thinking of like Disney rides, like when you go through Splash mm. Mountain and it kind of tells this little narrative and you're sort of floating through, and um, you know it's all set to a, a certain amount of time. You know, like at this minute this happens, this minute this happens. And it right. tells its own little mini story. Uh, we were we were specifically thinking of of like attractions and rides with with some of these stages and and how things will happen. Like at this point, you know, the fish gets picked up by a bear, or at this point, uh, the frogs start singing along. You know, so that that was that was kind of a yeah. From a presentational aspect, we um, 
we definitely we definitely were inspired by like theme parks and stuff. I could definitely see that. Yeah, that's awesome. Go, going back to Brawl and the Family for a second, because mm-hmm. you know that web comic had had a huge fan base, and each new strip was practically an event for many people, <laughs> myself included. Uh, what sort of things did that experience kind of allow you to carry with you as you move towards game design with Tadpole Treble? Brawl and the Family. It was it was just a, a very serendipitous thing. It I did not expect it to ever have that kind of reception that it did because at the time like web comics were um web comics were kind of like when you can finally you know drive a car when you're finally a legal adult mm. and you kind of go out and you can do whatever you want and it's like there there's a novelty to it you know because you're used to seeing newspaper comics that are kind of squeaky clean and then you know now we can have comics on the web and they can say whatever they want and we could have jokes about Mario doing unspeakable things, you know, and (laughs) my sense of humor wasn't really like that. It wasn't really a conscious thing, but it was like, I I like the Nintendo characters more or less acting in character, you know, give give or take a snake or Waluigi. Yeah. But, uh, but with, with, with Brawl in the family, I mean, people, people latched onto it, which was, which was pretty exciting, obviously. And I guess what I, what I mainly took from that was it was, it was nice to have this, uh, fan base that I knew enjoyed the stuff I did, and I, I feel like I could um, kind of rely on them to to keep an eye on on future projects that I did. Like I don't think I would be able to launch a Kickstarter for for Tadpole Trouble without uh, without that support in the first place. So I, I mean, I definitely appreciate all the fans who were who were supporting me that time. And you know, I go back and look at the original Tadpole Treble trailer and, and like the old screenshots. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm surprised anyone backed this because <laughs> it looks so <laughs> primitive even compared to, you know, what it came became later. But, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely appreciate all that. So I, I guess starting with that that fan base in the first place that really helped me to become, uh, you know, to, to make a game that could hit its goal, I guess. If you watch the launch trailer for the Nintendo Switch uh, for Tadpole Treble Encore, it's very much like this tongue-in-cheek, almost Disney parody. This, like, we have to be PG, but giving hints of something slightly more mature. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I like to... Um, I, I know people of all ages will, will, will watch or read my stuff, so I, I guess I kind of think of what, what, I would, what I would find amusing or, or, or just interesting, and... That trailer was largely based off the original, but I had to change a few things around. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I had to make it about Nintendo Switch. In fact, it was actually really tricky because initially it was and Tadpole Treble Encore for Switch. But Nintendo said I had to have it say Nintendo Switch. And I was thinking, oh, oh. man, I can't do that because now I got to change the rhythm of the words. Yeah. And so then eventually I had to rewrite it to it's all in Tadpole Treble Encore. Yeah, it's like that. And then then Etude says for Nintendo Switch. So like, so like he, <laughs> he, he sneaks it in there. Um, so that was actually a little more difficult than I expected because uh, because they they really like their specific terminology. You know, you, you can't really you can't really adjust it very much. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, talking about Kickstarter, you have got an ongoing Kickstarter campaign right now for an awesome new book, Game Master Classified. I definitely wanted to talk about that. So t- tell us a little bit about that. That came to be uh, what well, it really started with a Brawl in the Family comic uh, that I made mm. a while ago when Nintendo Power was announced it, that it was ending. I made a uh, a Howard and Nestor tribute 
doing just kind of this 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 final like I don't know just a little nod to to those two characters and right it got to Howard himself Howard Phillips who had who had been kind of active on on Facebook at the time and he reached out to me to help him with a Kickstarter idea of his own which was not the book actually it was a game he was working on I helped uh, draw some comics that were basically Howard's life before coming up to this point you know especially involving like the Famicom and the NES. And the Kickstarter didn't reach its goal, but uh, we, we enjoyed working together. So a few years later, he had emailed me kind of out of the blue saying he was thinking of making uh, a book of his memories, but he, he wanted it to be more than just like a textbook. He wanted it to be filled with, you know, illustrations and drawings and comics and things. And I said, well, that sounds great because, I mean, I'm not going to say no to Howard Phillips. I mean, that's that's I can do that. It's, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's an honor, you know, so. Um, I had made the suggestion, what if it's kind of like reminiscent of Nintendo power in some ways in terms of like the layouts and like we can have these nods to the different sections and stuff. And he really liked that idea. So um, basically, we've been working on that. Uh, it's it's a tell-all book about Howard Phillips' time at Nintendo during the decade he worked there. It was uh, 1981 to 1990. And it's all these like insider stories, uh, fun behind-the-scenes facts. It's got comics from... From like I'm doing the comics, but some of them are about him, about his you know crazy hijinks that went on when he worked at Nintendo. Some of them are about me and specifically my memories of like Nintendo games and different things that happened with that. Um, it's kind of a uh, like I'm 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 sort of providing the gamer's perspective, you know, and he's providing right. like, the pro's perspective. But it's it's mostly about him delivering these uh, these just these cool behind the scenes stories and stuff. So as a Nintendo fan, like this is a really cool thing to work on. He'll send me these big text documents and they've got all this like information I've never heard of, you know, or, or funny like stories Man. about like Howard Lincoln and Hiroshi Yamauchi. So it, it's it's really been a trip. Any stories you can tease us with? Um there's a there's a pretty brutal story about like injuries at work in particular. Like when he and some of the oh, other wow. guys were yeah, he's he's gone through some stuff. But um there's also there's a pretty funny one about uh, Howard Lincoln chewing him out, like just giving him the business. And uh, <laughs> it involved like a giant Fievel doll. I don't know if y'all remember American Tail. Yeah. Yeah. American he yeah. he kind of got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time at Nintendo with this Fievel doll. And wait, that sounds worse than it does. Hang on. He was, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was this. Uh, well, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but but basically uh it, it, it's always amusing to me when he gets in trouble. I don't know. Like it's, it's funny to me because you kind of picture him as like kind of, I, I don't know, these Nintendo, these Nintendo executives and stuff, like just sort of a, a, above like having problems happen. But, uh, but yeah, all sorts of, all sorts of shenanigans and stuff went down. So uh, that, that, that was a pretty funny story. I thought kind of humanizes it a little bit. I'd probably have to do like the little uh, cartoon, like swear, like symbols for it because uh <laughs> because the, the, yeah the the, the he, he, he kind of got the business from uh from howard lincoln wow who by the way i should clarify because this used to confuse me too howard lincoln is nintendo's was nintendo's uh chairman and he was the one that did not want uh night trap on the on the switch i mean not on the switch <laughs> on any nintendo system and howard phillips was the game master he was the guy that would play the games he was also like creative director and he Helped with uh, Nintendo Power and stuff, so mm -hmm. keeping keeping the right. Howard straight there. <laughs> we just you can see him actually right now on that playing with power 
series that's yes. on Crackle. That's right. So. I, I just watched the first episode of that yesterday. I was like, oh, there he is playing Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool to see. Mm-hmm. Well, one kind of common thread, and we, we've talked about all the stuff that you've worked on. I think one thing that is very clear is that you've got a passion for Nintendo. Um, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but what are some of your favorite Nintendo games and, and how did those games influence you as a creative? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Let me see. Uh, I mean, I, I got to start with Super Mario Brothers. That was the first game that I had played and it had really shaped a lot of just uh, my, I guess, my sensibilities when it comes to uh, character design. I just love how oh. iconic and like simple. I mean, it's it's not like super simple, but it's 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 there's a there's a degree of simplicity to the characters that make them really stand out to me. Um, same with the Legend of Zelda. Like the very first Zelda, the way the Octoroks look, I always really liked seeing like the different enemies and stuff and how creative they were. Um, right. The Legend of Zelda is actually the. I mean, that's my favorite series, and the first game in the series is actually my favorite game of of the Zelda series. And <laughs> it, it, and part of that is because of how open it is. Like the other day, I just played through that game in reverse order of the dungeons. You know, like I went through yeah. level eight first, but to do level eight, you got to get the candle and you, you get the candle and you, know, you have to have the bow and so you have to go to six. And then so you do you beat eight and then, you, you you know, you go backwards. And that's really the only Zelda game you can do that. in, except for uh, I, I think Breath of the Wild, you can you can do. Uh, obviously, you can do a lot in Breath of the Wild, but um, I, I find the Legend of Zelda really replayable. Uh, really, all the I mean. Ton of the Zelda games are among my like top thirty favorites. You know, Link's Awakening, Link to the Past, oh, of course, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Wind Waker. Like, I, I'm a huge fan of of great number of these. Um, the Metroid series is phenomenal. Super Metroid is awesome. Uh, Metroid Prime, I remember that came out. That was just like a huge, a huge thing. That that, that first person like adventure feel. Uh, Resident yeah. Evil Four, Final Fantasy Three slash Six. Uh, Super Smash Brothers, of course, always a classic. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've gotten, I've really gotten into every one of those games. Right now, I really like playing NES and Hero, and Mega Man, mm-hmm. Wii Fit Trainer, and Ridley. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of uh, that Nintendo feel. I guess uh, I think they do a good job of, of both character design and also um, blending sort of this feel that. You know, it's appropriate for kids, but when when you're an adult, you can kind of there, there's still depth to it. You know, there's right there's there's challenges to strive for. There's secrets and there's there's just a, a, a level of polish that I that I really appreciate. Well, being a fan of classic Zelda, classic Metroid and of course, of course, hand drawn artwork. Have you ever seen uh, hand drawn game guides? Oh, is that uh, I think I saw their Zelda one. Am I thinking of the same thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was like there was like a Zelda one guide that was put up for free <laughs> pretty recently. Yes. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'll check this out. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked it. It was like um I don't I don't remember where I found it. It was like a Twitter thing. But uh but yeah, it was it was really cool. I I didn't know that was like a, a whole is that like a series? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we spoke with uh, the guy, Phil Summers. Uh, you mentioned Metroid. He's Metroid is actually the next one he's working on. So I thought uh, you'd be into cool. that if you hadn't seen him before. Yeah, I, I just I saw I saw the Zelda one uh, a few days ago and I really liked it. It was cool. That's awesome. I so we have a question that we ask anytime we have the the pleasure of chatting with a an indie game developer. There's a question that we always like to ask them, and especially with you being such a big Nintendo fan, 
This is a complete hypothetical, but mm. if Nintendo were to allow you and Bitfinity to create an indie game based on any of their IP, what would you choose and why? That's a good question. We have, we had we had actually worked a little bit on a pitch for Nintendo um, for a series that is, while it's not my favorite series, it's one that I feel like would be really fun to work on. And it's one I'm a fan of that hasn't been around for decades. And that is Star Tropics. I knew you were oh. going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. My Star- heart. <laughs> Star Tropics is just, it's a very cool game. I mean, it, when you consider what it was doing on the NES, I think if it had yeah. a chance to have like a Super Nintendo version, like how Metroid really expanded with the Super NES version, or like Kid Icarus on the 3DS, which I which I loved, which I mean, it was very different from the, from the NES game, but it was, yeah. oh, Kid Icarus was so like, that, that might actually have my favorite cast in any Nintendo game because of, mm. of how it's just a lot of, I, I keep I keep I feel like I keep going off on these tangents, you know, talking about games. But like a lot, of, I, I I feel like a lot of voice acting in games, it's okay, but it's kind of got that sort of that that sort of anime area where it's like not supernatural feeling, or or like the humor doesn't sure. always kind of convert. But with Kid Icarus, it was just so like endearing and and like natural, and like the 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 writing and the jokes and the character interactions. I don't know. They all they all hit the spot for me. That, that is my favorite 3DS game. Oh yeah, yeah mine too. I love that game. Good call. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. Um, so Star Tropics. Yeah, I'd I'd love to do a new Star Tropics. I had I had made like a few images and stuff and uh, some music. I I don't know if y'all had seen, but uh, a few years ago on, on my YouTube channel, I put up a uh, a cover of the dungeon theme. You know, doom, 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 oh wow. Doom, mm-hmm. Yeah, I made a little a little a little arrangement of that. And uh, I'd send all that to Nintendo. I'm like, you know, we'd like to do Star Tropics. And you know, they were they were they were nice about it and everything, but they they were basically <laughs> saying, uh, you know, we we usually don't set out to fill a gap in with our IPs. We usually uh, find like a game that someone's working on, like a developer is working on, and will uh, apply an IP to it if it you know if it makes sense. Interesting. You know? That that was that was the gist of what they said. But uh, but yeah, the the short answer is yeah. I'd love to do a, a Star Tropics if if ever given the chance. That was, I mean, yeah, that was something. That's one of those series that I really think that if it, if it were handled correctly, if you took kind of a, you know, kind of like your style, almost a mm-hmm. comic-y Saturday morning cartoon kind of approach to it, I, I really uh-huh. think it could come back in a big bad way. Yeah, I, I we had come up with a bunch of different scenarios, you know, like like various oceanic scenarios, like stuff with pirates, stuff with like uh, I don't know these these different islands with like different uh, you know their own little weird little customs that you had to you know you had you were embroiled in a little bit like how in the first game you uh, end up in that castle full of women, so you have to like get right. disguise to be a woman to go in, you know, all, all those all those really quirky scenarios were were kind of ahead of their time, I think. Like I feel like that kind of stuff eventually made its way to to jrpgs like in the 16-bit era but you didn't see it much in the nes era it is kind of funny because i mean you know in this in this post cadence of hyrule world it it seems Mm. like there's a lot more possibility for nintendo to work with with indie devs i suppose so yeah yeah that's always interesting to see you know when we have again the the occasion to talk to an indie dev um what they would go for if, if they have the choice. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love that answer. Star <laughs> Tropics has a, a very special place in my heart. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it does. But in terms of, you know, moving outside of hypotheticals, obviously Tadpole Trouble was 
reviewed extraordinarily well. The original release has a 90 on Metacritic. You are very clearly adept at creating games. So could we expect another one from Bidfinity anytime in the near future? Uh, Michael, I mean, Michael and I are talking about it. We have a few ideas that we really like. Um, it's a little tricky because of how game development is so uh, front-loaded in terms of costs. You don't really get a return mm. until the game comes out, and it's it's a you know there's a risk involved. There's there's uh there's there's some trickiness. So we'd love to make another game, um, especially like a, a new IP. But right now we are sort of uh, kind of figuring out the the best way to to do that. And I've, I've, I kind of bounce around from project to project, I guess. Like, you know, I, I'll, I'll do a comic for a while, then I'll do a game, then I'll do a book. Um, I have another project idea for the near future that's none of those things. And um, that, that's kind of like the, the next plan for me. But uh, in the meantime, you know, Michael and I will keep talking about uh, what the future lies for uh, Bitfinity games, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we, uh, again, huge fans of what you guys are doing. Um, Tadpole Trouble Encore available now on Nintendo Switch. The Kickstarter campaign for Game Master Classified ends on March 10th, but is currently live. And you guys will find a link to back that book on Kickstarter in the episode description. Uh, Matthew, where can folks find you online? Uh, you can always find me at brawlinthefamily.com or you can go to my uh, Twitter account. It's Matthew P. Toronto. Oh, also the Bitfinity YouTube, where I do strange covers of songs using Waluigi's voice from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you just recently did one. That was a nice treat. I did, yeah. A little, little surprise, a little early April Fool's surprise for everyone. <laughs> well, I need to go back that book so I can figure out how in the world a Nintendo employee got in massive trouble because of the American tale. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All, uh, that that and more are waiting in uh, in Game Master Classified. So be on the lookout <laughs> for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's roll out the red carpet one last time again. Matthew Toronto. Yay! Yay! Thanks, guys. It's been fun. <laughs> Thank Thanks you so, so much, much for joining us, man. Good luck with everything. Sure thing. Y'all, y'all take care. Well, guys, that was a great chat with Matthew Toronto. We love talking to him about Nintendo and Tadpole Treble Encore and everything he's got going on. Again, you'll find the link to the Game Master Classified Kickstarter campaign still live until March 10th in the episode description. So definitely go check that out and support him there. Uh, man, yeah, just just a great guy. Great chat. Had a lot of fun talking with him. I did. And I really thought it was interesting. You know, he talked about the fact that he chose a tadpole specifically because Minty wasn't going to have to compete with any other popular style yeah. animals. I thought that was really cool. And, you know, it just we really didn't expect this episode to turn out to be the tadpole episode <laughs> we had a frog episode like a full-on frog episode a while that's back, true back in i think episode 10 so go back and check that out i might have a few <coughs> frogs in my <laughs> uh, little sorry a little bit of a phantom pain there. sorry a little bit of a flare-up there uh if you go back and check out that frog <laughs> episode you'll see what i'm talking about but yeah man it's been a really low-key great episode and yeah thank you guys for hanging out with us so much yeah, thanks, guys. And, you know, of course, March 10th, that, that day the Kickstarter campaign ends, don't forget, March 10th is Mario Day. Yeah, very much looking forward to Mario Day. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that a lot next week, but that's for next Saturday. Guys, for right now, I have been Biometal Model Eric. And I have been Star Spirit Seth. We will catch you guys next week. 
Hot and fresh out the kitchen.